were you a Prince fan? I can't say that I was. I, I yeah. obviously, you know, as someone who grew up in the '80s, it was impossible to miss him. And I watched right. tons of MTV, and so all of the the songs from the '80s are totally ingrained in my head because I've watched them just all the time. Because I always, you know, watched MTV all the time. I liked him a lot. I cannot say I was particularly a fan. I came around to it later because, like you, I was more of a. I always put him in the pop category a bit more, which I think is fair to say. Yeah. And I was kind of probably like a more rock and roll-y kind of guy. Uh, but, I mean, after I got out of that phase of, like, you know, when you st- like, I, I don't know, when you're a teenager, you tend to delete things into, like, good and bad a yeah. lot more. Uh, but, yeah, once I got into sort of appreciating, oh, man, he's immensely talented and he's had so much cultural impact in terms of other music and other just – other bands like just the way they behave it's like he's amazing yeah i tweeted something last night where it was a, a tribute it was from the when george harrison died and his son yeah. had like a tribute and uh, and prince played and and didn't even sing uh it was like tom petty and i forget who the uh somebody else steve uh, george harrison's son was on stage yeah I mean, and petty did most of the lyrics um but then prince came on with this guitar solo at the end and it's just just like jaw-droppingly good yeah. and i'd always heard I, i'm not you know and some people on twitter most people just retweeted it because it's an amazing performance and it's just i mean it's just it's a great song well played and it's yeah. just an amazing ending and then it's even better because at the end he prince knows he nailed it and he just nonchalantly tosses his guitar up in the air and it never comes down like where <laughs> what the hell happened to his guitar and then he, he must just been on a wire the whole time and yeah, yeah and he just saunters off stage like yeah, it's like such an amazing show i've the, seen i've seen him perform and he is incredible. I realize it's a guitar, not a microphone, but effectively it is the greatest mic drop I've ever seen. I mean, in addition to being a great song and a great performance, yeah. it is literally the best mic drop I've ever seen because it doesn't come down. Just... <laughs> yeah. And he rocks out like Jimi Hendrix style. Oh, absolutely. Which you're not accessible. accustomed to hearing necessarily in his songs. But he can do it. You know what I mean? He's like, yeah. oh, just in my back pocket, I could be the next Jimi Hendrix. But... Uh... Yeah, it's just in his yeah, back I play a lot of funk and stuff. And, and, and there were a couple of people on Twitter who were like, That's, I, how can you, you know, to me, how can you not know that Prince is one of like the top 20 guitarists of all time, maybe like top 10? And oh. I didn't know. I knew he was great. I know I knew he could play a bunch of instruments. And I knew he was a very talented musician, and including the guitar. I knew that because people told me, but I didn't know it in the way you really know it when you actually see it. Yeah. And I realized then that all of those guitar solos on all of Prince's songs that are so amazing are him. And I didn't know that before. I just yeah. knew that. Well, they were... half of the half of the other instruments that are being right. played are also him. Right. <laughs> so. That he's just doing it all, and it's in a way that's just uh, yeah. you know almost impossible to comprehend. I think one thing that I could probably convince you to appreciate about him a lot is that uh, remember when he had to change his name? He had from to, Prince. Yeah. So the record label basically had him. Uh, by the balls for producing albums under the name Prince, uh. and he didn't like his deal, so he's like, "Screw it!" And in the ultimate, fuck you. He's like, "I'm going to change my name to this character." Oh, I remember when he changed his name to the character. I didn't realize that it was it was a way out of his like a. It was 100 percent a way out of his like, "Screw you!" Like you're not owning my masters, like my my music. I'm taking it, and you're not owning my name because I'm going to change my name to something ridiculous. And he never bothered explaining to that. It's not like he went on all the shows and just told people. Hmm. He was like, look, I'm doing that. Let's, I'm going to keep focusing on my work. Same reason why he doesn't want all the YouTube stuff is he wants to basically be able to own all the distribution. Yeah. Because he, yeah, he thinks artists 
deserve to be paid. And I absolutely have been aware of his stance on that. Um, last night, I mean, like every, like half the people in the Western world last night, you know, Amy and I started, you know, went to listen to some Prince right. tunes <laughs> and not on Apple Music. I knew, that, you know, first thing I tried and, and uh, I instantly thought, well, I, I guess I knew that actually, you know, because he's not into that. So we just started buying a bunch of stuff from iTunes. It was a lot of fun. Good yeah. stuff. I, I posted a link today on Daring Fireball. I don't know if you saw it, but uh, just just like a random screenshot from um, a movie that Prince made in 1990 called Graffiti Bridge, where he played like a you know like a sort of thinly veiled version of himself, like a young songwriter. And in 1990, the character he was you know composing a song on like a little Mac SD. Mac, yeah. And and of course, it, and and it was totally legit. It wasn't like a phony phone, a phony fake. UI. It was like a real app from the day of, uh, you know, like a like MIDI tracking. Yeah, MIDI stuff, tracking, like trackers. Yeah. yeah. So like the actual screenshot in the uh, in the movie is actually like an actual song that he wrote. It was like so you got like a little look at <laughs> at his Prince's own like uh, 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 you know working Work, setup workflow when he's right. like trying stuff out with a Mac. Right. Yeah, it's like Warhol drawing on that. right. Like, yeah. Right, sketching on Mac Paint. Right, little nine-inch. Uh, <laughs> Look at this screen; it's tiny. God, what would it have been if it was an SE? I think that it was like the, the the guy who wrote the blog post was trying to figure out. He nailed it down. That it was either an SE or an SE thirty. Uh, yeah, the SE thirty didn't come out until like late in the year before the movie was made, though. So there's, I think there's a much better chance that it was just an SE. So that would have been uh, just a sixty-eight, sixty-eight thousand chip. I think I don't know if that if it had a sixty-eight twenty. But it wasn't until the SE's 68030 that the Mac really got fast. So that was a pretty slow machine. Nine you know inches. what, though? You got to, it says a lot about his forward looking. Oh, absolutely. Take absolutely. On being an artist that he's like, look, I'm going to try this crazy thing that probably sounded tinny and kind of crappy to him compared to all of the other options he had. But he was fascinated enough to like, oh, well, look, and I this think is, this I'm, is cool. I want to learn how to do it. You know? Yeah, and I'm sure the final output, you know, maybe didn't come right off the Mac, you know, in a lot of ways because you know he played a lot of actual analog instruments. But maybe to get the the composition right, yeah, it's yeah. that that power of digital editing and the way that you can you can move stuff. I mean, we take it for granted today, and you know, people who've grown up in an, in an all digital world. I, you know, I could see why they take it for granted. But you know, when you learned to be a writer, or you know, like like I did, where we didn't have word processors or computers at our disposal all the time. Um, I mean, I used to actually. I'm in high school. I used an actual. I used a typewriter to write stuff. And it's yeah. like when you think about like when you're halfway through a thing and you really want to move a paragraph, or even just take out a sentence. If you realize you've just duplicated the same sentence twice something that you wrote like the page before and it's like you either have to ret retype the whole page the whole or page. just or just live with it you know you start making decisions based on convenience rather than w what it should be craft right yeah. i mean you really was if you wanted to get do anywhere near a halfway decent job it was almost impossible not to type the whole thing twice because there's how could you not make some sort of editing decision you know where you go through it with right. a pen and then retype it and you would literally have to retype the, the thing and i mean i'm sure music you know was the same way in a lot of ways and that digital editing the same way that it's revolutionized you know word processing same way for music oh i'm sure yeah 
So I think I, it's definitely changing the tempo. Like there's uh, there's almost a third dimension to music that doesn't necessarily happen in in right. writing. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I don't know. What I remember from those days, the early days of the Mac, around that time, is yes, yes. The, we 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 were constantly running up against every single one of the limits of the machines. The, the, the I mean, just stacks full of floppy disks, all stuffed to within a few bytes of being full. A hard drive that was completely full. If you go back even just a few more years, you didn't even have a hard drive. Everything was yeah. off a floppy drive. Uh, severely RAM constrained. I mean, the, most of those devices, a lot of those early Macs only had uh, a, a gigabyte or two gigabytes. My, my Mac LC in 1991 had four, a whopping four gig, or not gigabytes, megabytes. megabytes. Four okay, megabytes. Good. Of, that was a, yeah. Four megabytes of RAM. Uh, so your RAM constrained, storage constrained. The storage was incredibly slow. The hard drives were slow. The floppies were so slow you could hear them making the reads and writes. Yeah. I guess you could hear the hard drives too, but yeah. the floppies. I used to find were, that comforting. Yeah, definitely, because you knew it, something well, was working. At least you know. it was it was comforting in a way you didn't think about until it went away, right. and then you realized that uh, if you think that something might be going wrong, you don't have that comfort. Like at least back then, it's like if you thought something was going wrong, like like a crash, like maybe or the you know the system's locking up, but you could still hear the thing you were hoping was being saved being written to you had hope that okay at least it's still writing yeah. to the disc or if it locked up and all you could hear is like a whir and then a clicking noise right like, oh, there were oh, certain no. noises <laughs> you could definitely you did a big part of the diagnosis of any problem back then was what kind of what kind of noise mechanical is robot is falling apart yeah. right because there were certain uh if it was perfectly repetitious then that's a bad sign Yes, that's like the same thing as going. Oh, yes, you, you could hear. Sometimes you could hear it when a program had wedged itself into an infinite loop, yeah. uh, and that was bad. But like there was a certain <laughs> randomness to the sounds of like a file being written that it wasn't quite repetitious. That that was soothing because we were seeking to the different sectors, so you'd hear the. Yeah. Right. There was. It was more of an analog relationship. It was a, fundamentally a digital machine. But there was, you know, the the actual spinning disk and and the physicality of the ones and zeros being written to the disk gave it a certain a genuinely analog dimension that that came across in your relationship with it. I feel like this probably a I don't drive, so correct me, but uh, uh, like a manual versus automatic kind of yeah, I think switch. so. Like you like you're very aware of the machine in one case, and in the other case, you're kind of divorced from it a little bit. Well, and I think there's also a, a – if you compare it to driving, and I'm not really a car guy, but I do drive. But I think there's also uh, almost undisputably a, a a comparison to as as decades go on, car, our cars are more and more abstract mm -hmm. in terms of just how much isolation there is from the noise outside, the the shock absorption – and older cars, you really feel the road, and you feel it's it's you're just so much less removed. I mean, it's almost shocking sometimes when you look at a car from the '60s or '70s, let alone further, like how thin the doors are. You know, it's right. everything was a lot more thinner, and you just felt the road more. And it's more pleasing, I think, overall. I mean, obviously, consumer money talks. It's more pleasing to have it abstracted, but in a, in a way, as the driver, you're you're removed from the 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 just the feel of the road. 
Yeah. Did you show me that video? Or did I? I don't. I don't know if I shared it with you. It's like an old 1950s Buick crashing into I don't know what, like a modern smart car or something. No, I don't think so. But. And the Buick just gets destroyed. <laughs> <laughs> there were. It was it, like the little guy just. It's so much better engineered now. That it's like, it's absolutely amazing the differences that they've made in um, the, the ability to to, to survive the, a crash. I forget yeah. what they call it. The, the passenger to keep the to to maintain the integrity of the passenger cabin and yeah. and sacrifice the entire rest of the car. It's it's just unbelievable. Whereas in the old days, the whole car would just collapse like a can of coke. Yeah, it's yeah. kind of sick. Like the, <laughs> it really <laughs> the is. engine block it's would sick. be like going right into your chest. Basically. It's sickening too because you think like those old time cars, the old cars were so heavy that they would be safer, but they just weren't because the structure, the you know, the structural integrity just wasn't there. But it really is like it's just stepping on an, an empty aluminum can. It just the whole thing just would yeah. just collapse yeah, into yeah. itself, and it's well, you know, designed for different goals. The ATP guys are like shaking their fists at us now. Oh, I don't think so. I think Syracuse is probably happy about the old time Mac talk. Ah, uh, maybe. They had a good segment recently where they were talking. I guess because it, it was sort of one of the recent episodes was the hey, it's Apple's 40th anniversary. Let's yeah. look back at our first Macs. And and I couldn't listen to the Marco or Casey. No, it's <laughs> awful. I honestly I consider myself a Johnny Come Lately. You are, if, and I'm like you're a graphics guy, right? Yeah. So, and he's, you know, anything after that, I'm like, come on, kids, get your act together. No, oh, that was one of those times where at Syracuse, it was really, I, you know, it just felt like he was creepily picking <laughs> the thoughts out of my brain because it was, he was, he actually started using a Mac a few years before me, even though he's a few years younger than me, just because my school, uh, my high school only had one Mac. Yeah. And when I, the longer I went, I had like, it was almost like they had classes for just like two or three of us in, in programming. Um, as like my last two years of high school, there weren't, it was only like two or three other kids in the class. And I wanted, uh, <laughs> I wanted a color display. So I used the 2GS. Oh, it was very, that, I would have made that choice too. Well, there was only one Mac and, and it was, you know, and I didn't want to, you know, I guess I could have argued for equal time on it. Uh, it was a, I remember it was a classmate named Elliot, uh, but it was like, you know, we were trying to decide which one of us would maybe use the Mac and who, you know, and then there were a bunch of two GSs in the lab that, that, you know, we could choose from. I guess if neither of us wanted to use the Mac, we could have both used the two GS, but he's, you know, he seemed more interested in the Mac and I was, I was fine to let him have it. I, I, mean, I, I played with it a little and I remember playing with, especially with Mac, right. And Mac paint. Mac Paint in particular and Mac Draw, but even back then with Mac Draw, even in 1989 or 90, I was instantly baffled by Bezier curves. But if it, oh yeah, I love. I understood what it meant. I understood that it, uh, it what a vector graphic could offer, and I was fascinated. But damned if I could navigate the interface. But Mac yeah. Paint, man. Well, the control points are like voodoo. So I learned the math. And I say that knowing the math and how yeah. to do it, but it's still like, it, it's unintuitive. You know? Yeah, it's very unintuitive. And and everything I learned about the Mac was just completely intuitive. I remember too. I didn't, we so had, I, didn't, I didn't like the Mac because for what, so I started on Apple II Plus, loved the Apple II GS, then got into PCs. Uh, and for whatever reason, because I was a stubborn kid, I was like, I didn't like the Mac floppy disk. 
I just, it was like, because it had that latch, you know, like the three and a half inch floppy yeah. disk. I just found it inelegant. And I found that you, I liked the five and a quarter ones because you could flip them over and use a hole punch and then you could get a whole second side. You could do that with the with the plastic ones too. But it was that obviously it, harder it to... It was harder to make the hole, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it was, just, so it was dumb, but it was like a five-year phase of my life. Where, and I mean, I was getting into like hardcore Intel assembly programming and stuff at the time. Uh but then I did a drafting class in high school because I like drawing. Turns out, not the same thing. Uh, but one of the things we had to do is work on a Mac in Mac Draw. Uh, it changed my mind hmm. very soon after that. I mean, the software was brilliant. I, I loved it. It was such a new, different experience. Um, it's so funny too. I know and Casey even mentioned it because Casey's too way too young, but he was baffled by the fact that the three and a half inch ones were still called floppies, even though there was nothing floppy about them because they were in a hard yeah. shell. <laughs> and it is it's just one of those stupid names. Cause it, what they did, I think long story short, the the there used to be eight inch floppies really going yeah. back, but and that yeah. predates my time. But then like in the Apple II era and what most of us in the 80s knew were the five and a quarter inch. I, I bet your parents have like a stack of five and a quarter inch floppies or, yeah, probably, maybe, probably even five and a quarter inch floppies. No, because I didn't have a computer in the house. Oh, so, oh, really? Yeah, I've told this story before. Oh, yeah, my, you have. Okay, yeah. My parents refused to buy me a computer. This is, this is why you made, this Be is why your career in technology went nowhere. All, a lot of my friends were getting computers. Uh, my friend Joey had an Apple Apple IIe, which I deeply coveted because I, 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 from the early days on, could I perceived that Apple's computers were of superior build quality and were made with a, an eye to design that the others weren't. Um, but I would have taken any of them. I would have taken a Commodore. I would have, ta I would have taken any or all of them. Yeah. Um, but my friends were getting computers. They were all relatively expensive. The Apple in particular, <laughs> some things don't, don't change. Um, but even like a com a good Commodore sixty four was was uh, uh, they weren't cheap. They weren't cheap, and a lot of my friends had to push because their parents were like that's a lot of money, um, and you're not you know and my and and you're not going to use it enough. You know you're just going to play games. We already have an Atari for games. My parents wouldn't buy me a computer because they said if we buy you a computer, we're worried that you're never going to leave the house. <laughs> that yeah, <you're> <laughs> like they. I don't know if it was the right parental decision or not. I can't quite say I, I even in hindsight. I, I I can't quite say I agree with them, but maybe because, you know, I, I didn't have a I had a pretty good social life in high school, but I don't maybe I wouldn't have <laughs> I had had a computer at home. I think it's probably the right decision. Because <laughs> I got so well, because we're kind of similar and not, right. not entirely, but uh I got the the first Apple II I got was uh, I think the second summer after I moved from England here, so I didn't really know a lot of people in, in Canada. And I basically spent the entire summer inside programming. Right. And that became like part of my, uh, I don't know how to describe it, like a like a recharging, like you're, you know, when you need some alone time to go and do something just for yourself. like, And that lasted all during high school, hmm. which is when I actually became good at my you know what, what my trade is now but yeah there was a lot of time i just did not go outside <laughs> when i really should have like in the beautiful summer i'd be like uh maybe i'll just try fixing this little bug in the summer between 10th and 11th grade my high school shut down the the, the 
the building was had needed a lot of repairs, especially the roof. And the school district had another building. There was a middle school, and it and in the decades prior, the the population of the school district decreased such that they closed the middle school, put the fifth and sixth graders in the elementary school, and it went from three schools, elementary, middle, and high school, to just two buildings, an elementary school for one to six and a high school for seven to 12. And in between 10th and 11th grade, they shut down the high school and moved the high school to the middle school because it was a newer, it was considered, it was cheaper to fix up mm-hmm. the, the middle school, which had been dormant for like four or five years. Um, and shut down the high school. So the computer teacher um, uh, didn't trust the movers with the computers and let students take the computers home for the summer. So I got to take an Apple II GS uh, home for the summer. Oh, man, that's awesome. Yeah, it was awesome. Uh, and I had a job. I uh, actually, the school hired a bunch of kids to help move the school. So I was like working as like a mover. <laughs> Uh, there's a couple of good That's stories. That's pretty smart. Was that like a legit job? Like they got paid minimum wage? Oh yeah, minimum like... wage. Absolutely. Okay. Uh, okay. uh, I don't, it was whatever. I think minimum well, wage. Well, it could have been just playing fast and loose. You know? I think it was either three seventy five an hour or four twenty five an hour. $4.25 an hour. That would make and sense. backbreaking yeah. work. I mean, I remember moving the library. Oh my God. <laughs> it's just like, cause what is heavier <laughs> than a box full of books? There's, There's it, yeah. very little is heavier than a box of books. And it's just thousands of books, tens of thousands of books. Oh, it was awful. <laughs> and we used to ride, it was like a two mile ride to go between the buildings. Uh, and they just, we just had like this big flatbed open air truck and we would just load it up with stuff and then find spots to sit. And we, you know, no uh, open air, no seatbelts are in, just a bunch of kids on a truck. Oh, man, I love that. How old school is that? <laughs> <laughs> it's hire some minimum wage kids and just throw them in the back of a truck along they, with some books. They, they were, <laughs> they also did hire some uh, adults, like, day laborer types. I mean, this is, I mean, the people yeah. who just do moving, it's, it's, these are not highly skilled work. This is like the bottom of the, the skill chain in the, in the, the laboring world. Um, and I remember the one day we were, when we were still moving the library, we had the card catalog. And, and so it was, you know, obviously this is predates computerization of the card catalog. It was just this, you, do you remember what they look like? They just are like oh, little, yeah, yeah, totally. little, yeah. little tiny They're drawers. like two hole punches on the bottom, like yeah. little cards that you pull out. Yeah. Yeah. And you'd pull it out and it was just filled with index cards. And the one guy, this guy, it wasn't a kid, it was an adult. He was like, what the hell is this? And we were like trying to explain to him that this is, these are like an index of every single book in the library. And he just takes a few out while we're on the road going like 35 miles an hour and just th- throws them up in the air. <laughs> and I just I I mean I was into I was an asshole as a teenager. I really was and it did a lot of shit that I in hindsight I really feel like I needed I need to be I need a good smacking. Yeah. Yeah, uh, but I was just appalled <laughs> I was appalled because I saw that as like irrever as data loss. Like some of the stuff yeah. I did like vandalism or stuff like that, I I I, I wrote off just because it, it seemed ultimately harmless whereas i felt yeah, like put a bit of graffiti on a political sign that's right all, right you know. but i mean messing with books oh that was never burn a book and like right yeah, that's the right worst. that like that's went over like, like i'll tell you crap, what the same yeah. summer so the same summer when we're moving we the, the old the old high school had a central courtyard so that classes on the inside got sunlight too 
right? So the, oh, in other words, okay. it's sort of an O-shaped building. It was rectangular, but like a donut. Three floors, central courtyard. And one of the classrooms on the third floor had like a janky old big-ass color TV, and it wasn't new at the time. And we dared each other to throw it out the window into the courtyard to, <laughs> to see see what kind of noise it would make. And ultimately, me and another guy like took it. Like we, neither of us would do it by ourselves, but we we and it was heavy enough that I don't know if I could have. It was really heavy. But me and another guy, I don't want to, I don't want to name him. <laughs> Just in case. in case, I don't want to put his name on the right. I I can afford it. Uh, <laughs> and another kid opened up the window and we tossed this big ass color TV out the window and it made the greatest noise. Oh my God. It was, it was worth it. So I did that and I didn't feel the least bit guilty about it. Uh, and then there was a discussion, there was a discussion, there was a meeting later about the TV and did anybody know, (laughs) did anybody, does anybody know about the TV in the courtyard? And nobody, nobody could remember anything about that. Um, That's weird. But that the, the tossing the cards out of the card catalog, though, to me that was that was beyond the pale because it's like sacrilegious. Data yeah, right? exactly. Yeah, yeah. That's not. But we. Were yeah, the way you put it is just data loss. Yeah. Have you seen that? Uh, I think on the one of the BOS CDs that they shipped the OS on, like one of the demo movies, was them tossing monitors off the top of their office block. No, I don't think so. Like, it was exactly what you described. They just dragged a bunch of old monitors up and they just threw them off the roof. <laughs> Which maybe explains why they went out of business. But <laughs> yeah. uh, it, it was pretty funny. Ask Lissio about that. He'll, he'll probably has a link or something. All right, I'm going to see if I can Google it after the show. BOS developers show. tossing monitors yeah. off the, the roof. Yeah, so you, being a Letterman addict probably didn't help either because tossing a TV off, off a high high floor of a building is a very letterman like thing to do yes the difference yeah. the difference is that if the letterman show tossed a tv off the roof they bought the tv yes yeah <laughs> I controlled not, environment right. <laughs> there's no way anybody i did not buy the tv by that tv i did yeah. not buy the tv i threw out the window um <laughs> but i had a job i had it was a full-time job we worked you know eight hours a day uh i played tons and tons of uh basketball all summer long and filling in the gaps whenever it wasn't working and then every other waiting moment was spent uh on the computer and i thought that you know the fact that i held a job and still played recreational basketball all the time uh and went to movies with friends on weekends and stuff like that seemed to me like i was able to have a computer but my parents were like see this is why we can't buy you a computer even though i was doing all that other stuff they somehow seemed to think that i was spending ah you turned out okay oh yeah i don't don't know about that (laughs) (laughs) well (laughs) <laughs> for the sake of this argument. Yeah, yeah, yeah whatever. The difference, though, I would say this, and I think that it was the fact that I just didn't... I Like I said, I got to play with that one Mac in the lab enough that I, I saw what it was all about, and I saw the appeal, and I really saw the cleverness of having a system that was fundamentally a graphical user interface. Um, mm-hmm. But the idea of getting obsessed with user interface design just hadn't occurred to me yet. And and the the profoundness of the cleverness of the Mac's UI system, just it, it, I hadn't I didn't use I needed to use it more to to appreciate it. I don't think it had occurred to anybody yet, uh, with the exception of the people that worked on the Lisa and then the Mac. 
It seems that's one difference with Syracuse and me. It seems like you're listening to his early history of computing that he got he got that aspect of the Mac with almost maybe instantly, but certainly with less exposure to it than I did. I needed to own one. Hmm. Uh, which is which I did when I got to college. I had that Mac, like I said, the aforementioned four four megabyte of RAM, forty megabyte hard drive Mac LC, and then yeah. I really really appreciated it. So no, so I liked the Mac, like I said in the in the drafting class. I was like, okay, I get it. This is something totally different. Um, but I didn't really appreciate one until I bought one after the immediately after the next ac- acquisition. Uh. And then I was stuck with OS 8 for a year. And I felt immediately like, oh, man, I'm stuck with this operating system that's, like, not good. And then I learned all of the great things about it. Um, So, yeah, like, I do consider myself a Johnny-come-lately. But what I mean by uh, nobody had appreciated it, uh, like, I don't think the people at Xerox Park were necessarily thinking about design the same way that uh, Apple was when they went to actually try to implement well, first Elise and then the Mac. Yeah. Yeah, it's hard to say without using the... I've never gotten a chance to use the Xerox Star, but I've read enough about it and the work that Xerox did and seen it and kind of looked at it and... and Because I used to be a little bit more obsessed with the whole... That stupid... This, the angle that Apple... Apple really didn't even do anything with the Mac. They just ripped off Xerox, um, which legally isn't true because they actually got Xerox in exchange for a bit of Apple yeah, stock. It was totally on the up and up legally. They they said, "How about we give you a little bit of uh, stock in the Apple Apple computer, and then let also, us." Also, I just think that's a facile argument. Yeah, in general. Like, well, it's wrong. Does it matter? Like, Who cares? Like, no, but it's at the time it was at it, it at the time when there were, was more were more arguments between you know uh, PC. Sure, at the Mac time and, it was a point, but I mean, it's only it, it's only a point if you're uh, trying to make an appeal to authority argument, right? And I never got too bogged down in. I mean, somebody might be able to dig up some old Usenet posts that dis. <laughs> 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 yeah, me too. <laughs> but I seem to recall that I always. I, I was found very anti old school Mac guys for a while. I find I found it tiresome because it it uh, it was I, I was a hundred percent certain that I was on the right side, and it seemed to me like the people on the other side didn't really have anything to contribute anyway. So if they want to be wrong, they can be wrong. <laughs> Like it wasn't worth trying to convince them. There was what was what would be the point if you know if you can't see how superior this is, then you know forget about it. I mean, Syracuse mentioned it's, it. On it's the incredible how you've grown and you attitude towards that kind of thing. All right. Oh yeah. <laughs> um, I thought one of the things that I thought was I, I to me. Do you remember? Do you do you? When you, I don't know if you were too late. I mean, ResEdit was still a thing, and that. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. ResEdit to me was is maybe the my favorite Mac program of that. Loved time. it. Loved Just it. Be- I, 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 while being foreign to me, I loved the idea of a resource fork. I loved right. the idea of stuffing extra information in there. Uh, uh, on the Windows side, they tried to do something similar. Uh, like the EXE format is a flat format, but you can have resources appended to it. Right. But it's not the same thing as having like an actual resource fork, which is good and bad. Uh, good in that it's just one flat binary stream. Uh, bad in that you don't have the, uh, the, the nuance and express 
expressiveness of like a like a res edit or like a multi resource file. Well, and it did it it, it it and it the whole idea predated the era of universal the, the internet. It's the internet that really solved the problem of every computing well, device. I disagree. I, th- I think the internet. I think the internet turned everything into the lowest common denominator. It did. That Unix, was that Unix was, binary stream right, thing. Right. Yeah. It's it's. It that's reset not, the clock in a lot of ways. Yeah, and that's in not some to, ways negative, you know. Exactly. It's not to say that it meant the best thing won. It just meant though that there was there might be a good reason to go with the lowest common denominator right. yeah. solution of everything is just a single fork file. Yeah. Um, I was but, coming from OS two at the time, which uh, and even NT, which both had uh, <coughs> uh, multiple resource file forks. Right. Like at that time, all of the file systems had followed what the Mac had done, which was like. Okay, there's data in one segment, and then there's a bunch of other segments that have, you know, either metadata or, you know, what you guys call resource forks. The conceptual, extended attributes, which we conceptually still have to this day. though is what really. It's not even the technical details of whether it was a two fork, multi fork file system, or if they had done something uh, more of a hack. Like let's say it's, or you know, like a lot like what we have on OS X now, where where your app is really just a folder that the right. binder treats as a file. And Total the hack. resources, yeah. you know, just imagine if the original Mac had gone with the same thing where it's a special magic kind of folder and in the folder are all the resources and every one of the resources is itself actually just a flat file. It's the conceptual design of having this one app that you could edit all that stuff with, all these yeah. different resources, so that even in the nerd mode of of either being a developer or just being an enthusiast who wants to customize the icon for a file or a, an app or a folder um, or any of the other many, many things you could edit and manipulate and res edit. The fact that even when you did those things, you were still within same the same GUI universe mm-hmm. and you didn't have to resort to a command line or something. Yeah, no, in some ways that's kind of like the small talk, like living in an environment. Yes, kind of I, do, I do think so. I think in a, in a strange way... Even though the Mac, the original Mac, I don't think you would say in a technical way no, was all that influenced super by different. But the concept is a little bit the same, right? Like Yes. That you that you stay completely committed to this to this limitation that you're self imposing and, and beauty will come out of it. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. And you know what's funny? Uh Next used to do that with like apps that shipped even on OS ten up until oh, I'm gonna make up a number. 10.2, Most of the apps would ship with nibs, uh, which were next interface builder files, which you could open up in uh, interface builder, which has since been merged into Xcode, uh, and then edit the UI of the app that you, like if you didn't like the arrangement of dialog boxes, you could change it. Just like in ResEdit. These days they've moved away from that. Yeah, uh, they all get compiled down into stuff that you can't edit afterwards. Uh, from a software reliability point of view, I think that's probably a good idea. But I like that the old West style of you know stuff is is was common between both platforms. The the classic macOS was, and I'm not saying that it should have in hindsight that it should have 
gone through to, through to today. I mean, there's certainly some advantages to the Mac OS X philosophy, you know, of the design of the system, um, where things started getting locked down and some of the technical aspects of it were not as conceptually beautiful, but mm-hmm. more practical. Um, yeah. That's when I first uh, kind of became f- or familiar with Syracuse. Mm. Is I would argue the, uh, the back then it was mailing lists, and I would argue the uh, future-looking pragmatism, and he would argue that well, it just sucks in terms right. of let's say window sizing, right? And like, well, look, it's all done on the GPU, and they're doing a bunch of stuff, and it's going to get better. And he'd be like, yeah, but it sucks. And he was, <laughs> he was right. He's right. I think I'm also right, but the, you know. There was a beauty to the original Mac OS, though, that hasn't been matched since, and I don't think ever I totally agree with you. And, much, and I completely yeah. agree with John Syracuse that iOS is closer, much closer, yep. Yep. than Mac OS X is to the... Uh, the original iOS, yeah. I think now we're getting yeah. into well more convoluted territory where I'm not so sure. Well, the big difference, the big difference, and this never would have made sense in the era of of the original Mac wouldn't have, it just, I don't think it ever would have occurred to anybody, even Steve jobs to lock the system down and not even allow you to, you know, that like the res edit's a perfect comparison. There's never going to be a res edit for iOS that lets you diddle with the icons for apps or yeah. other resources in it. Cause it, that, that doesn't, that there's another aspect of iOS that that would be philosophically opposed to. There's a sort of, do not allow you to shoot your like part of the design of iOS is to design a system that prevents you from shooting yourself in the foot. Even if right. you'd really, re- if you've got like a real itchy, you know, case of athlete's foot and you just want to shoot yourself in the foot, you're not, you can't do it in iOS by itself. Um, that just never would have occurred to anybody in the Mac OS era. Like, I don't think the fact that, you know, I mean, it wasn't like the machine shipped with res edit. You had to put it on your machine um, but not even allowing you to do res edit or not allowing, you know, having a res edit that wasn't allowed to edit certain system files or something like that. Never. It just didn't make sense. Well, I mean, used to, some of the hacks we would do, we would go right into the, remember there was the system suitcase. There was yes. actual, there was a, <laughs> yeah. uh, I mean, that's part of the things, one of the things that I say made the Mac, the original Mac so beautiful is that the, the entire file system was, there was no, uh, no crap. There was like, or, or in as years went on, very, very little crap. Like it was just a folder that said system folder and inside was a, a, a suitcase file called system. And that had all the resources for the system itself. And they were all neatly organized. There were, there were no hidden folders or anything like that. Mm-hmm. The only hidden folder that I can remember would be the desktop folder that on the root level of the hard drive, there was an invisible folder called the dis- de- desktop folder, which was the actual location in the file system where everything you put on your desktop was. Notably under the root of the disk, not under the user. Because there was no user. Right. <laughs> well, that's, that, I mean, this is why things got a little bit interesting right. when OS Ten came along, right? Like right. things got a little bit freaky. Right. And that's why we started... I don't remember if it was a beta that actually hid anything outside of user. Oh man, I think that there was. I think they, might have they, been floated, but yeah. they went back and forth on a lot of those things. Yeah. Uh let me take a break while we were. Yeah, you think so? <laughs> <laughs> Thank our first sponsor. Forty-one minutes in, and we haven't even done a show yet. 
<laughs> it's a, it's our good <laughs> friends at audible.com. This episode of the show is sponsored by audible.com. They have more than 180,000 audiobooks and spoken word audio products. And you can get a 30-day free trial for all of it at uh, audible.com slash talk show. So if you want to listen to it, Audible has it. They've got audiobooks from virtually every genre, anytime, anywhere. You can play Audible's audiobooks on phones, tablets, computers, most Kindles, and even iPods. I mean, and they've been sponsoring this show and other podcasts for many, many, many years because it makes sense. Because guess what? Podcasts, anybody who's listening to me talk about Audible right now, you are somebody who enjoys listening to people talk to audio, spoken audio content. I don't know how you're listening to me. If you're using, uh, you know, your phone. If you're using your desktop, got headphones on. You're pumping it through your car speakers. But whoever you are and whatever you're doing, you like listening to spoken word audio content. So, duh, Audible with over 180 thousand of these things is uh, something you ought to look at if to fill up the remaining time that you have to to listen to stuff. I mean, don't stop listening to the talk show, but you know, if you've got free time or you wish that there was more stuff to listen to, uh Audible is the one place that has more stuff than you'll ever be able to listen to. Um, so when you begin your free 30-day trial, you can get your first audiobook for free, and there's no stress or obligation. You can cancel your membership at any time. Um, when you subscribe to Audible, you can take risks and try new authors and genres without regret because Audible offers their great listen guarantee. If you start an audiobook and you don't like it, it bores the hell out of you or whatever. If it's not what you thought it was going to be, you can exchange it for free for another one. Cannot be better. People, you know, people who listen to a lot of audio content, you this is the place to go to soak soak up more of it than you'll ever get. So go to audible.com slash talk show uh, and get your 30-day free trial. Thank you to Audible for sponsoring the talk show. I didn't even have this in the notes. I I do I always prepare very copious and well-organized notes for the show. Yeah. And I did not yeah. have a trip down memory lane. Here's no, how much I, I like the Mac. Yeah. I like the Mac so much that when I was a freshman in college and finally owned one and had it, I spent my entire freshman year, all of my free time, uh, either playing games or hacking or diddling with the system resources and in, in res edit, uh, and didn't you know didn't go out drinking or anything like that. Well, I did recreation. I just continued to play basketball. I played basketball and then I sat in my dorm room staring at my Mac LC. <laughs> just staring at it. And we didn't have a network at the time. There was no, there was no uh, internet in the dorms at Drexel University at the time. So you know what? And um, modems were modems were so expensive. They were preposterous. They were like though. not a joke. Yeah, they were preposterous. This is what ninety one, ninety? Yeah, ninety one to ninety two. Yeah, I've told this story before too. We we wired up uh, the dorm room Calhoun Hall at Drexel <clears> with. Uh, Phone net, I forget what they were called, but they were these little, and they were these were pretty cheap. You could get them, you ordered them out of the back of Macworld magazine or Mac user. You you'd mail order these things, get them, get yours from Mac Connection. It was about fifteen bucks, and you'd get a little, about the size of a, of a mouse, maybe even probably smaller than the mouse of a day, and it would plug into the serial port of your Mac, and then it was a phone connector on the other side on the box, and so then you could use phone cable just regular old telephone cable to create a local talk network. Oh, um, man. Macs were good at that. So, so then you're playing video games again. Like, right. Spectre like, was yeah. the name of the, was the, it was like a first person shoot, like a, a vector based, you know, pseudo vector based uh, tank game. Um, and we wired up the whole floor um, 
and we figured out, you know, and then we figured out that, you know, this is like the first time I learned how, you know, elect, you know, some electrical stuff uh, worked. That there's nothing really magical about phone cable. It's, it's just copper. That's all it is. There's no. It's just copper and elect, you know, electrons move on it. There's, you know, and it, the colors are just to match up. There's nothing different about them. So yeah, we figured out we could. We we just ran speaker wire through the drop ceiling all around the. The, I forget what floor I was on, the 8th floor or 7th floor of Calhoun Hall, and then just ran phone wire between anybody who wanted to get on the network or not. Uh, you know, and you don't have to do any soldering or anything. You just, you know, connect the, the just make sure the cable and then just uh, electrical tape it up. Um, so we had the whole floor wired up, networking. There was a chat app. Oh, my God. It was like the first time I ever had, I forget what it was called. Boy, uh, somebody out there will remember it. Um, but so it, the Mac, it wasn't the, the well, you just hot, had hot wire, was it? Like, no, it was way before that. Way before was, that, yeah. But you, I, I don't even. I guess you'd have to know. You didn't have a user ID. You have a Mac name though, so your Mac would have a name huh. on the local Tots network. So that's how you'd, you know, that was like your ID. So, but you could like effectively just send DMs to each other, uh, which was amazing. <laughs> of course, everybody does this all the time now. But it was like my introduction to. Yeah, I know. Yeah, that is really cool. And it was all through a proper Mac interface. There was no. It wasn't like you had to go to a, a terminal type application or anything like that. It was great. Yeah. And then we found out the kids on the floor above us had done the same thing. And so did you bridge them? Did you? Create, yeah, like, there was like a lot a, of trash. Let's talking call about it who's, an internet. Well, there was a lot of trash talking about who's better at, at Spectre, and so we ran some wire outside my room up to the one <laughs> physically created an internet. Yeah. <laughs> And then one day, the guy, I forget the, his title, but he, whoever it was, he was the guy who was the, in charge of the, that dorm. Uh, you know, like. Uh, I forget uh, his title, but the guy that was in charge well, of that But there dorm, was, a, he had like a name. That sounds like an 80s villain. Yeah. Well, no, he was a nice guy. Thing. I have to, he was, it was a very 80s movie situation where I got a knock on the door and was told to come down and meet him. And it was me and the guy above <laughs> me whose thing. He said He's in a smoking jacket with like one the, of those candy with those candy cigarettes. Right. The dorm faced south, or at least my side of the dorm faced south, and so it caught the afternoon sunlight. The afternoon sunlight came into our dorm room. He said he was coming up the street yesterday and no, noticed a very bright. This is where we like, where we screwed up is that we just used speaker wire instead of mm. we didn't really try to disguise it, and that the the copper of the speaker wire really it was bright. It like blinded him. And he saw like a very bright line between our <laughs> dorm rooms. And when he got closer and figured out what it was, you know, that this is a fire hazard and we've, you know, got to take this down immediately. And, uh, he obviously, and I tried to explain to him that I'm, I think, I think I'm correct that it was not a fire hazard. It's, I don't think there's enough voltage. In right. There's not enough voltage. It. You know, mm. it's, it, it's not but a fire hazard. Also not a dumb suggestion. No, nah, not a dumbest suggestion. And I could totally see why as a someone with a job that, you know, yeah. <laughs> you needed to, to deal with this. So we said, oh, yeah, we'll get right on it. We'll take it right down. And and all we did was take down the bridge between the two floors, of course, <laughs> and hope that he didn't make any kind of spot uh, inspection. Because it also seemed clear he had no idea. He, I, I think he, because he saw it, he thought it was a connection between my room and the kid above me's room, not a connection between like 30 dorm rooms. Right. Those were the days. <laughs> Can't compete with that. Maybe you could have used like a shielded wire a little bit more. Would have been good. 
But yeah, yeah I don't know. Yeah, I, I mean, when you could get... have, you know, money was money was a problem though. I mean, this was a network that we, you know, other than the, everybody had a fifteen dollar box they had to buy themselves, and I would say the rest of it cost us about <laughs> ten dollars. Yeah, wherever wherever we went to buy speaker wire in bulk and d- d- uh, electrical tape. I like that you stepped up from just using the uh, like sort of the tin that you can get from like gum wrappers, <laughs> burning off the paper side, and then just reusing the tin and just kind of wrapping it together. I'm trying to Google the name of this app and I cannot find it. I don't know how to because it's because it was something that was only of use in the maybe late 80s, very late 80s and early 90s. It all yeah. predates the internet and it predates Google, so I know it's like impossible. You know what? Uh, you used to go to. The I would. Chooser. I would think about like old school Unix names. Yeah, I remember no, the it wasn't a Unix name. It was a total Mac thing. It was a pure not that Mac it was a port, but like like a riff on it. Yeah. It was like, like wasn't wasn't talk like something you could do? Local talk, but it, but the this no, yeah, local talk was the uh, uh, the protocol, but talk on Unix. Yeah, I remember talk, and and there was like variants of it, like N talk and Y yeah. talk. Amy and I used to use that extensively because I've, <laughs> this is an entirely retro episode of the show. So Amy was in Pittsburgh and I was in Philadelphia. And even though it's still the state of Pennsylvania, it was still, this is how ancient the early nineties were. The long distance phone calls were still a thing. So we used to re- just yeah. by talking a few minutes a week, we'd rack up a hundred dollar a month phone bill, which was massive to yeah. college student. Um, so there was no way to, to cost effectively speak on the phone from Pittsburgh to Philadelphia. Um, and then we just, you know, we got email and we'd email each other. And then uh, when we discovered uh, like talk and end talk, but we, we had to use them. Like she had to use it from a, um, like a lab at Pitt, at university of Pittsburgh. She didn't have a computer in her dorm. And eventually I think I got a modem soon enough, but I think when we first started doing it, I might've had to go to the lab too. So we'd have to like, schedule a time because you wouldn't be able to to get in touch you know like like the whole idea of how do you start texting with somebody is is a totally different problem when you don't have the the phone with you at all times yeah there's no better sexy talk than schedule time in the lab right (laughs) (laughs) yeah but it worked it was amazing. You could oh, see yeah. you could see yeah. what each other was typing at the same time too. At least with one of them, the one we liked the best. Oh, like, like character by character. Yeah, it was like split. with the deletes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I yeah. kind of missed so, that. And you could make jokes with it. You know, it was good. It yeah. was a good way to like make jokes where you would type something and then delete, delete, delete. Yeah, I'm of two minds of that. I'm kind of glad that people don't get to see what I was about to say. <laughs> but I remember those apps when it was like you had to be careful. You had to be careful. Yeah. I'd like a three-digit ICQ code at one point, which I never used. Do you remember ICQ at all? Uh, yeah, I never really used it, though. Really? Well, mostly PC thing. Yeah. And I remember I remember not getting – it was like a real eye-opener to me where I, I heard of it and I saw it. Now, I don't think I ever signed up for it. And then, it, But it was like six months after I became aware of it when I realized that, uh, that, that the name was a pun. Because I also yeah. remember IRC, and I, you know, IRC was just Internet Relay Chat, uh, yeah. and I did use that, of course. And then I thought ICQ was just the same thing where it had meant something, and I didn't realize that it was ICQ. Yeah, it's yeah, it's which got is, a cute name, which yeah. explains why I had no interest in using it. Yeah, well, I also at the time did not have any interest in talking to people that weren't in front of me. 
Has <laughs> changed as I have become employed. Are you still looking? Like you're I am. I'm, I'm tweeting. I'm going to tweet here. This is a live. This is a tweet live during a the live talk tweet. show. Anyone remember the name of the early '90s chooser extension for instant messaging on local talk? Let's see if if Twitter can. Uh, let's see if Twitter can uh, can, can save the day. Yeah. Yeah. Fill in you know, the role, uh, the role of the live audience. Right. I just want to say we actually had a plan. Like I have an omni outline document here about <laughs> well, what we're going it. to talk about. And, let's get into it. And you know what? The first one was Prince. Right. We did that. And we're still doing that. <laughs> well, well, what was next on your omni outliner? Was it uh, the Ben Thompson uh, Apple? Yeah, the Apple services stuff. Right. Yeah. So yeah. Ben Thompson. And I don't want to drag you back to this because I love no. the trip down. No, if we filled it up. I'll just wait until yeah. my Twitter replies have the. Have yeah, 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 we'll get back to that. Um. So, how would you summarize Ben Thompson? Ben Thompson had a great piece on... Ben Thompson as a person? No, no, no. The Ben Thompson piece. I don't like that guy. Yeah, he's he's difficult. Uh, (laughs) I kid, I kid. He had a good piece, his weekly free... He may may take that to heart. His weekly free for everyone stratechery column this week was... I thought really... I mean, it's always good, but I thought this one was particularly good. Yeah. Um, More or less arguing that... All right. One of the things that makes Apple very unique, I'm going to try to summarize this very quickly, is that Apple doesn't have product divisions. There's no Mac division. Uh, uh, the logical way for a company that sells what Apple sells would be to have uh, a Mac division, an iPhone division, probably a separate iPad division. Although there's, you know, you could argue whether argue. the iPad yeah. would be in the in the i in the iPhone division, a new watch division, etc. And they TV. don't. TV or accessories, TV yeah. accessories division with TV being the thing, and they don't. That's not how the company has been set up. It it that's the first thing and probably the most important thing that Steve Jobs did when he came back in 1997 uh, was dismantle that sort of thinking and it put in what would what is best called. I mean, this is the part where Ben Ben <laughs> Ben can smart talk us because he actually, you know, like knows the business school terminology. Yeah. We just I love of, when you when you ask me to talk about this, I'm like, seriously? Like Well, but that's I'm the gift. dummy on it. Like his I'm a gift, pretty though, technical it, guy, but this side of his anyway. Gift, his he calls gift, it functional yeah. versus divisional. Right. You you just described divisional. Right. Uh Apple works as a functional right. structure. And, you know, there have been exceptions. The iPod division was sort of an exception to this. Um, but they got rid of that. And um, Well, wait. Let, let's define why. The iPod division was uh, separate from that because it had its own OS and its right. own right. sort of it, manufacturing thrust. Yeah. It, it made sense for it. And I think it sort of evolved naturally and it wasn't really seen as an exception but simply – that it just was, it just made sense, especially in the early years. Yeah. Um, and I really, I don't think it's overstating it that that the decision to go with a stripped down version of OS X as the OS for the original iPhone, instead of a a you know muscled up version of the iPod OS. Uh, or some other new new OS in the in the mindset of the iPod OS, um, and in Pix- personal Pixio. terms, right, yeah. right, exactly. What was it called? Pixio. Pixio. P I X. 
I think it was either PIXO or PIXIO. I yeah, I think it was PIXO, but yeah, it was an embedded operating system, you know, for for that they licensed and heavily modified. Right. Um, I think I'm being fair in describing that as a, and including all of you know the early iPods as ever more computer like electronic gadgets, and then the other mindset. It, is and it just you you know the the industry just had to wait until computers got small enough and cheap enough and and ran with you know a low enough energy to make ever more gadget like computers right the iphone yeah. is a gadget like unix computer i mean it really is it's a full you know it's a much better unix computer than most of the servers of you know the earlier part of our lives you well know, going i mean going back to what we're talking about the previously, uh, when OS X first became a thing, people were all worried about like, well, Unix writes out these massive uh, log files every night at midnight. Right. You can't do that on a PC. You know, a few years later, it's appropriate to be using on a phone because of a lot of the work that went into OS X and yeah. sort of taming Unix back to be, uh, I guess, more focused or, or you know, um, I remember at the Macworld where the original iPhone was introduced. It was Macworld Expo January 2007. And it was it's the biggest sensation of all sensations. We don't have to go into that. But then there was, you know, the trade show was there afterwards. And uh, I think I was doing a live episode of the talk show. Uh, and I, I did it with Cable Sasser. Uh, yeah. Dan, Dan Benjamin cable. wasn't there, and so was Craig there too, or was it just Cable? Um, I think it was just Cable that time. Yeah, because uh, you were in this glass booth, right? No, it was a different. It was a different one. We had oh, an, okay. yeah, we had a, and we, we weren't in a glass booth, and we had an audience of people. Um, it might have been after that one where where we did it in the the glass booth, um, which was weird. <laughs> but we're out on the open show floor. The acoustics are terrible. Um, I don't know where the audio is, but it was just, just we obviously knew what we wanted to talk about. It was just me and Cable Sasser talking about this amazing iPhone. And I just remember Cable came up, and we had, you know, I don't know, 50, 100 people in front of us. And Cable said, how many people, how many of you guys are thinking you're going to buy one right away? And everybody's hand just shot up, like just shot up. Instantly. I've never seen any product where every single person just needed to have one right away. It was amazing. But anyway... Uh, Wait, I, just small inter in interjection. Okay. I couldn't buy one in Canada. <laughs> I was there. I saw one. I bought it. All I could do, and I've told the story before, but all I could do for like a long time was slide to unlock to call 911. <laughs> that was it. I spent a bunch of money on something so incredible. Oh, but you could use and it. The as, only thing I as could do would touch. be to call the police to arrest right. me for abusing a feature on my new phone. And you could use it on Wi-Fi. Uh, not until after a jailbreak. Oh, that's right. Because that's I right. couldn't even jailbreak it at the oh time. God, I'm I, telling you, all I could do is slide that thing. I'm I like, totally I'm forgot about that. That you had to unlock the uh, the carrier unlock it yeah you had to get it unlocked by at&t before it would even work as a, a ipod touch that's right yeah. that's right yeah yeah, yeah. yeah so, so i finally I, I was i slide down the line i would have bought one too i would have done the same thing it, it was like me buying the mac as soon as jobs returned to the company or like next got bought i was like okay i'm in let's uh let's see what you got so 
after the podcast, I there was a, a friend at Apple who I'd known for a while, um, still there, so I can't say who, but somebody, and and I knew that they they had he had, he had disappeared for a while, you know, and and just disappeared in terms of like he was obviously working on something that was all consuming, and it turned out he was working on the you know first version of it wasn't even called iOS yet. Um, and, you know, even then, even though he could reveal that, yes, this is what I've been working on. He's, you know, he's an Apple person. He still can't, even off the record in private, just, you know, in, you know, just commiserating after the show. It wasn't uh, mic'd or anything. But I had questions. And he, you know, would Apple friends always let you ask questions. They just sometimes don't answer them. You just have to get <laughs> used to that. And I asked him, I was like, okay, so if it's running even a, the most stripped-down version of OS X conceivable, just really, really lighter weight and really take a hatchet to all sorts of stuff that, you know, the daemons and processes that run in the background. I was like, that is going to take forever to turn on compared to an iPod or like a regular cell phone. And he just looked at me and smiled and he just said, yes, as though, yes, there's no way to avoid that. But you won't have to turn, you know, what if you don't have to turn it off all the time? (laughs) And I was like, oh, and I realized like, Oh, that is interesting, and I that 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 whole story was inspired by your, like the way that like a unit most Unix machines were configured that at the turn of midnight just start doing a spew uh, a whole bunch of automated system cleanup and log files and all this stuff and rotate on and do all this crazy stuff, uh, and just because all the Unix machines we knew to date did that doesn't mean that a one that was built for consumers would have to do that too. It's like you just step away and realize that that is a terrible assumption to make. Right. And I always took that one step further in that, um, uh, A, they didn't give you swap space. Right. And just to explain that, uh, if if you use more memory than is available to you, Typical Unix systems will try to make it available to you by granting you disk space to swap out portions of whatever you're working on. Uh, instead, it would tell you, uh, you're getting very close to the limit here. And then there wasn't even three strikes. Right. It was like, the second strike was like, okay, well, you're dead. Right. I'll just kill you. Your app will go away. Um, and that brought a new discipline to writing applications right. that was foreign to the Unix world where you you presumed that you had uh, you know, if not complete control, at least uh, you could uh, marshal the the system into doing exactly what you wanted. Right, especially once we got to the point where disk space was, if not infinite, was at least compared to RAM infinite. Mm-hmm. Like once we started measuring uh, hard disks in hundreds of gigabytes, at least maybe even the early, maybe even like forty, eighty gigabyte sizes compared to ram that's just humongous and therefore mm-hmm. unix's game of we'll just pretend ram is infinite and write out what you're using to disk and move from disk back into actual ram what we need on the fly could work but that's exactly why in layman's terms in i mean and this just doesn't happen anymore if you have ssds and it probably doesn't happen anymore just because you don't really most of us don't need swap or at least don't need much um 
But in the days of spinning hard drives and low amounts of RAM, when your system started to slow down and you'd hear your hard drive or feel it yeah. going all the time, that's yeah. exactly why. Because it was constantly shuffling back and forth. Um, like if it was a visceral thing. Well, I'm, I'm kind of glad we did that memory lane thing right. at the top of the show because it gives a lot more context to this kind of stuff. Well, the other and the other philosophical aspect of traditional Unix is that a process that starts running will run until it process the process itself decides. Okay, I'm done, and now I'm leaving. Yeah. And you could have bugs that would crash the thing. You as a user could take personal interaction and kill the process manually like the you know force quit it um but the system itself would do whatever it takes to make sure that bugs aside and user action aside you will run forever if you want to run forever and ios like you said said you need to be ready to die in a moment's notice right like traditional unix operating systems uh bend over backwards in service of the applications that they're running if you have any data that iOS needs, bends over backwards right. for the user. Right. And for the interaction the interactivity. For the interaction. The yeah. Um and so the idea as a as a proper iOS developer is if you have any data that needs to be that needs to be saved, you need to save it constantly and at all times. At any time it changes, save it. Anytime it changes, save it automatically. Because you might be killed at any moment, and that's fair game. You may be killed and then the user may come back to your app and you're expected to be in the same spot. To pretend like nothing had happened. And yeah, I mean, the home button used to just kill you. Right. Yeah, every time, automatically. As yeah. soon as they hit the home button, whatever was running was... Yeah, you know, and I love a, that discipline. I really do. Little bit of hardcore. But, in the time it yeah. took for the, uh, for the animation to go back to the home screen, you were expected to be completely cleaned up. Yeah, you were... You were yeah. um, cut the boot. But so anyway, that, that decision, that fateful decision to go the cut-down version of OS X route effectively squeezed Tony Fidel out the door and sort of brought an end to that functional arangement. And then in 2011... No, when, that would be a divisional arrangement. Yeah, the divisional arrangement. I'm sorry. Yeah. And then, and then you're correct. And then in 2011, with the Scott Forstall ouster, it really ended it because effectively, I think it's fair to say that Scott Forstall ran an iOS division within Apple. Maybe that's a little too glib, but it's, you know, forestall. Yeah, I don't know how to, maybe. You know, and there were obviously some parts that were shared between OSs, but they tended to filter back and forth years later, right? Like, and there was even an event the one time where they made that the theme of the event. It was called like the Back, back to, to the my Mac. Mac. Back to the back Mac. Back to the Mac, yeah. And it was, look, we've we created a bunch of these cool technologies for iOS in the last few years. And they'd actually, these things would make sense on OS X, and so we've taken them back to the Mac. Um, as opposed to today's, I would say, extremely functionally aligned Apple, where um, uh, uh, Craig Federighi's team in charge of software. is in charge of software. And yes, there's some divisions, and it seems like the watchOS team is sort of off on its own um, but I don't think in a contentious way. It's just in a they have to put their heads down. No, I don't think it's contentious. I just right. think it's early days. Right. Yeah, exactly. I think it makes sense for early days that you sort yeah. of get to I think you could probably say that Apple TV is kind of in the same boat. But Apple TV is, I right. believe, under Eddie Q. Yeah, I, 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 
think so, but I don't, I'm not entirely sure. Um, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'll bet you're right. Um, and so Ben Thompson's argument is that this works great for devices. Apple has proven that it works great and it, it, it explains Apple's you know, I wouldn't, you know, anything can end because it all depends on actual execution. They have to, it's easy so long as you keep making great products. And that's actually a very, you know, the keep making great products is difficult in and of itself. But if you do, it's easy to keep, keep them popular and to keep the integration between things that, that makes Apple's stuff. So, uh, you know, famously, uh, fun and easy and, and, and attractive to use. Yeah. Um, and I, in some ways I do think that that's, it's, it's folly to associate, uh, the success of one company with the, uh, prominence of one kind of model. Hmm. Like you don't, whether one company succeeds or fails has a lot more to do with other factors other than the, their particular model. Like you can't, you can't, I don't think you can look at any functional company and be like, well, they're bound to be like Apple because that's not the truth. Similarly, I don't think you can say that like any company that follows a divisional uh, organizational pattern is going to become like DuPont, which is his, you know, his, his, his example. Right. Um, right. Ben's example is that, and I think it's, <coughs> excuse me. I think it's pretty interesting is to compare Apple today to DuPont from like a hundred years ago. Post, and that, uh, yeah. Well, and that Post effectively one. DuPont yeah. became huge by building one, doing one thing, which was making gunpowder. And then, um, they, Turns out in World War One that was popular. Yeah. <laughs> and then uh, post-war, they realized that gunpowder was at a technical level very similar to to making paint, and a lot of stuff needed to be repainted because of World War One. And so they decided <laughs> to, to uh, area seem, what seemed like a natural area of growth for the Dupont company was expand into making paint, and it, yet somehow they ended up losing tons of money on the paint business because of, even though it was similar to manufacture, the market was entirely different. Right. So selling gunpowder, they would sell to massive buyers. Like, uh, well, I mean, obviously the military. Yeah, effectively, I think most of Buy a lot military. of bullets, you know. Right. Uh, selling paint, you'd be selling to mom and pa that are trying to, like, paint their house or their, right. you know, their small business kind of thing. Very different. Right. Very different marketing, very different packaging, very different distribution schemes. Right. And, and, you know, they ended up having to switch. And so they switched to a uh, divisional. Divisional. Right. Uh -huh. So there's a paint division and a gunpowder division, and it, and it worked out. And then that became the model for uh, big corporations ever since. And now Apple is seen as the exception as opposed to 100 years ago where, where Apple's functional arrangement would have seemed more natural. So the question is, should Apple services be split out into a divisional? Yeah, this is where, this is the point, the whole point of Ben's thing is that this works great for Apple with devices. It is not working out well for them with services. And Apple themselves, their executives on the quarterly call, like three months ago, emphasized their efforts into uh, uh, services. 
and it's Ben's argument is that they should re, they should split services out into a separate division, even account, you know, even do a separate profit and loss for that division. Um, and not it, even, I think. Okay, well, he equivalates on that right. a little bit, but equivocates, I should say. But uh, separate profit and loss would allow them to track the uh, the progress of the services division hmm. separately from the the product division. I can see. I, I I I'm not entirely convinced that he's right, but I can definitely I see that. He, I yeah. see that he might be, and and the yep. difference is that I think, and I think, uh, you know, I think he makes this point too. But that the traditional uh, divisional nature is what creates intercompany political conflict that blocks. That, that it it often leads to. This is why a company never tends to disrupt itself. That if Apple had a culture like that, then the the iPhone they never would have even debated whether it was the iPod division that would make the iPhone because of course they did because the iPod was the new hot thing at Apple at the time, right. and then the iPod division might have made designed an iPhone that was designed to make sure that it didn't keep people from wanting to still buy an iPod, and could just go forward a little bit more. Then the if there was an iPhone division and and Steve Jobs wanted to make a tablet, they would have been political, you know, resistance within the company of, but what if these tablets make people not buy as many iPhones and so on and so forth? Or, well, Macs, or the Mac division in particular yeah. would say, no way, what, a, you know, the MacBook, MacBooks are the heart and soul and the only part of our business that's growing. And clearly this tablet, which you guys want to even make a keyboard for, uh, is something that's going to how could it not how could every one of these that you sell for only $750 not mean that someone's less likely to buy one of our things for $1500 right well i mean just look at the new uh smaller ipad pro with the just whatever a couple of days ago updated macbook right uh i don't know i i they very much seem to be in the same spectrum to me. Oh, without question. I mean, it's you know, and it's which one you prefer, but it's in a <laughs> in a in a divisional. And I, you know, I, I know enough about Apple in time, and you know, and I have enough friends who work there, and you do too. That I'm not arguing that Apple is a company without internal politics and without grumbling right. between people who work on this and people who work on that, or people who even if what they're working on isn't. Uh, isn't even in conflict with each other. But a lot of times the, the most astute critics of things within Apple that are subpar are other people at Apple who work on something else, who th the whole point, the whole reason they work at Apple and have a career at Apple is they tend to be very talented people with very high standards for how stuff works, that they get the Apple way. I'd, I'd even remove the the proviso that they work on something else. Uh, I think. Yeah, sometimes. I, think, I honestly think yeah, people that work at Apple are their own worst critics. That's a that's a fantastic point. That is Which very is true. Which is honestly kind of what makes them right. a great company. Right. Like like, that, that's kind of the key. Right. Yeah. And that sometimes when you talk to people at Apple, the people who I think are the best and the people who are like, oh, of course, of course you're successful at Apple are the people who, you're exactly right. They are the ones who know all the, the things that suck about the thing that they work on. And you say, like, hey, yeah. the new what do you call it is really great. And they'll be like, thanks, but, I mean, come on. And then they, they know everything that's wrong with it. And it's like, oh, yeah, of course you work at Apple. And the people who want to brag about the stuff that they work on, you're like, you're not going to last long. <laughs> yeah. 
You know, I remember talking, you know, and you and I, I think we were probably there together, but talking to people who worked on early iPhones and telling them how awesome the touch interaction is. And then they're like, oh my God, I can get it to go. Look, if I do this and this, it's way below uh, 60 frames per second. <laughs> you know, like they knew all the paths to get to, to do something that would make scrolling or whatever drop beneath 60 frames per second. And they're like, that's, this is dog shit. And you're like, yeah. you just right. built the well, most always, By device. the time it ships, they're on to the next thing, right? Right, exactly. But that's exactly why they keep getting better year over year is that they're disgusted yeah. by the influence of what's there. It's just as a, I don't know, as a broader metaphor, uh, do, you, do you cook ever? Yeah, sometimes I cook a few things. Okay, so you know when you cook and then you like, I hope okay, whatever that burger didn't turn out as well. Okay, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> but whatever, when you cook something and then you're, you're eating it, and you're always the uh, for oh, me at least. Yes. I'm the harshest critic. I'm like, ah, oh, it didn't work out so well. Oh, I could have left this a little bit more. These could be a little bit more tender. And everybody else is like, would you shut up and stop being a dick? Because yeah. I'm trying to enjoy the, you know, the meal. And I'm always like, yeah, maybe next time I'll do this. And that's just because that's the way yeah. your mind works. And I think at Apple with software or hardware, uh, I think that's what you're thinking. It's like, okay, that came out of the oven pretty good. I'm happy. Glad that shipped. Now, yeah. you know, how do I improve on that? That's absolutely. I mean, Amy does most of the cooking here, and that's absolutely how she is. She's way, way. She's her own harshest critic. No, and it's mm. it just shows you, if you're a good person, a good worker who's focused on improving the product. That's the way your mindset has to be. And if you're a sort of self-centered person who's more worried about your own career or just just the way other people perceive you because you you're you're you know uh you have like an inferiority complex or something like that that then you're gonna you're gonna want to make people think that whatever you've done is awesome and perfect and you know and laugh at the competition and stuff like that you can still laugh at the competition well Some, yeah sometimes yeah. they suck <laughs> but you know what i you know what i mean you i do totally I mean. know what you mean yeah it's like this there's a difference between laughing at them and discounting them yeah, you still, I still sometimes meet people at Apple who, and I'm exaggerating, but it, and in some degree seem to buy into the, we're Apple, whatever we do is going to be the best, you know, sort of thinking that the exceptionalism of Apple is just, that's just the rules of the game are whatever Apple makes is excellent just because it's Apple. No, that's not by fiat. That's by and, hard and I'm, fucking work. I'm exaggerating <laughs> that, that, you know, putting it in words like that, but there's a certain mindset that you buy into that even a little bit. And it's, I, to me, it's a very dangerous way of thinking and it's a natural trap to fall into, but the best people, um, 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 don't have that mindset. Uh, let me interrupt the show. Breaking news. Do, 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 The thing I was talking about, the ethernet old school, not ethernet, it's up before ethernet, uh, local talk, but it did work over ethernet, ether talk too. Uh, ether talk was like local talk over ethernet. But that was expensive. We couldn't do that in the dorm. Anyway, the name of the app was uh, Broadcast. <laughs> it was awesome. It was awesome. I feel All like sorts we of- should have just put four words in a hat and guessed that one. Right. Broadcast. Oh, That's a good God. name. That's a great name. I will see. I will do my best to find a link for the show notes that uh, that shows it. So what do you think about this uh Service we well, I can kind of so, see. So, it. in in a follow up piece that is, I don't think it's public. Uh, no, it was on his his uh, 
subscriber only newsletter. Which maybe, we maybe you should him, ask him to just make that pop. <laughs> given all the time, he's done it a few times. He really has. I've, I've asked yeah. him, and he's been like, eh, whatever. I'll yeah, now it's like a week old. I'll see what I can do. Yeah. Um, he clarifies some of his points. He gets a lot more detail into into his thinking. Um, and also acknowledges some of the 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 uh, some trepidation, I should say, about like switching into a, switching um, services into its own division. But does bring out the point that Apple Retail was run as its own division for a right. long time, right? Because running a retail division is fundamentally different than running you know, a hardware or software organization. Is that not true for services too? Yeah, I almost think that the online services are uh, very closely analogous to the stores where the services are just glue that, that, that is there to make the devices better. The devices mm -hmm. are still the fundamental business of the company and the services are just a, the stores are just a way to get more of the devices sold and the services are just a way to make the devices better once you own them. It's like what the stores are before you have the new Apple device in your hand, the services are to what you do with it after you've open, you know, opened it and started. Well, using. okay, so it, here's where I, I don't know if I'm even playing devil's advocate, but uh, I'm going to come at this from a different aspect. Um, the stores... I mean, okay, saying the stores were just a way to, to push Mac products. Okay, fine. But are the services just a way to push the devices? Or are uh, they a thing unto themselves? Well, which is what Apple has kind of been saying. But I think, though, that the the all of it is in further serving the Apple brand as a whole, right? I mean, because sure. that's why the stores are nice, right? They're the nicest stores, some of the nicest stores I've ever seen that sell any products anywhere and that that they're famously... <laughs> don't, don't go full Trump on this, but... Yeah. They are. They are. They are and I'm not, I'm just joking. But, yeah. And they're very anti-Trumpian in their design yes, aesthetics, right? 100%, yeah. <laughs> they're, they're not ornate. Pull opposite, yeah. They are, you know, architecturally very minimalist. Um uh, you know, but that, that famously, you know, that the, the, the earlier stores, I don't think they use the same material anymore, but they got a special kind of limestone from Italy that Steve Jobs had seen while, while traveling in Europe and you know, all sorts of crazy stuff that they do to make every detail right. And it's not like, hey, let's, there's no sense of cheaping out in the stores. And I think that the services should be the same way where it's not like, well, this is just an afterthought to help. The, I think they should, they should be thought of as these things that are first class, um, parts of the Apple brand and the uh, Apple, you know, customer experience. Okay, so what are the services? Can you enumerate them? Um, That's, that sounded like I'm challenging you. But I know. I'm, I'm honestly, I'm like, okay, what are they? Really? Well, the one area, one area where I disagree with Ben, and we do it on the podcast occasionally, is I, he has a lower opinion of Apple's online services than I do. I actually <laughs> think Apple's online services are a lot better than they get credit for. And I think in many cases, uh, many cases suffer from uh, just the 
the notion, the basic notion that people believe Apple makes great devices and crummy services. And by starting with that framework in their mind, they're a lot more likely to have a to, to focus on the negative aspects of, of Apple services. And then secondly, some of them suffer from a bad first impression. And Maps is a great example of that, where a lot of people, some people, and, and real world usage, Apple Maps is off the charts. It's way by far and away the most popular uh, map service for iPhone and iOS users. Um, and part of that is just by nature of being pre-installed. But secondarily, it's gotten a lot better. And am I arguing that is it is as good as Google Maps? Uh, no, but I don't. I don't use Google Maps anymore just because I never. I never. You know that that whole like I'll keep the app installed because if Apple Maps lets me down, I'll use Google Maps. I, that hasn't happened to me in forever. At mm-hmm. least since the transit came to New York and Apple Maps. And I think inarguably, anybody who looked at Apple Maps, just the general state of how much is mapped and how much detail, it's it's much improved. Um, so I'm not I'm not as down on services overall. I mean, Maps is just one example, but anything like that, Maps, iMessage, uh, iCloud. Uh, well, wait. Let, so let's take iMessage as a uh, as a service. The value proposition of iMessage is that it's encrypted end to end, and it works across all your devices. I think that's a huge all your part iOS of the- devices. Oh, and your Mac. Okay, all your Apple devices. How do you ensure that that is true? If like, how do you put that into a web browser? I don't think they should. I wouldn't. Okay, so that limits the value of the service to right. only Apple devices, right? That's what I'm saying. It's like, like, how do you break out services apart from the devices that they support? Right. I see what you mean. You're saying, you know, like, how do you make a division that is all about? So Microsoft did it, and and you were on board for it with um, uh, Azure, where they could just be like, you know what, screw Windows and Office, we're just going to make an awesome service. Yeah, that's different than what Apple can do with the services that they currently run because they seem. Uh, you know, quite integrated with the, you know, the devices, or at least the notion that they have uh, a trusted endpoint. And it's it, it kind of conflicts if you're going to start saying, "Hey," and you report your own profit and loss, and you're not allowed to expand to Windows or Android or right. web. Aren't you cutting? You know, you're you're. Well, that becomes a strategy tax of like you're cutting them off at the knees. You're saying yeah. we're going to count, we're going to, we want you to be as profitable as you can, but we're we're setting rules that'll prevent you from being as profitable as as you could be as a, just as an independent entity because we think it serves the company's interests overall. Right, and I don't think they faced that with the retail because it couldn't. Really conflict with their yeah. There weren't any rules. There weren't there weren't any strategy tax type rules imposed upon the Apple Store that held them back. Right. Like for example, they're not. I'm sure that if Ron Johnson back in the day had said to Steve Jobs, "Hey, I some of these people are coming in and they want to buy Windows laptops too. Can we sell some Dell Windows, you know, Dell laptops on a table across from the PowerBooks?" And Jobs would have said, "You're fired." <laughs> Right. But he wouldn't have done that though. That actually, in, that actually wouldn't have actually helped the Apple stores make more money. That it's in theory, I, you could see how you know turning it into more of like a Best Buy where they sell anything and everything 
defeats the whole purpose, which was to focus, you know, that by putting all the Apple stuff together and showing that it was different actually made it more likely that they would sell them. But they did sell accessories that were non-Apple. Some that even competed with Apple stuff, like headphones. Yeah. Yeah. They still do. Yeah, they still do. Yeah, and I you mean, know they bought they, Beats, which is the biggest one. Right, but but they don't impose a rule on them uh, that you can only sell Apple stuff like headphones. You know, mm. it's well, you can't you teams. can't sell a book. That, <laughs> what was the book that uh, Jobs got yanked? Oh, that was one a long time ago. I forget which one. Yeah, uh, that was funny. <laughs> <laughs> I just I I honestly admire the. The just capriciousness of that kind of stuff. Why didn't did they used to sell books? Is that I don't know. I but I mean you remember the story. I'm sure you wrote about it. Right. Uh, I do remember. I mean, it wasn't even that long ago, but I remember when they used to sell tons and tons of box software. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, some of her friends like Omni and uh, yeah. you know Shipley, like Delicious Monster, had some stuff. Oh yeah, we definitely know people who who had. I think BB Edit was still on in boxes at the time. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I'm care. In fact, I know that BB Edit at some point was still in a box, and when it was in a box, it was in the Apple stores. It's <laughs> crazy. That's, box software is a hard. I mean, people hit the App Store. Wow. The thirty percent try you lo- box stuff. The thirty percent you lose on the App Store is nothing compared to what you lost in in box no, software. It's no. ex- I mean, we could do a whole show about it, but it's and you know it from games too. I mean, it was exactly yeah. the same, probably even worse because the the there was more money involved. Or it, it but it. <laughs> I mean, you're literally buying spots to be like, how much money is it going to cost us to have it at foot level? Part of the reason that like apps- not even eye level, like foot level. It's a protection racket. It's it was yeah. It was like okay, yeah. we'll take it, but we're only we're going to put it on the bottom shelf, which was like ankle level. Well, and first it's you like, have you to talk them into taking it, right. which is like dinners and like like just flirty girls. Like the whole it was. It's a nightmare. It's a <laughs> night like talking to sales dudes is like not cool. So I'm glad all of that aspect is gone. But at the same time, it's like uh, still not great in terms of actually getting, you know, the way the app stores are working. <laughs> I don't want my box at the ankle level. Well, then you have to pay. Yeah. And it was exactly why like, apps like, were so expensive. Not a joke. They had to it's be like, expensive. Yeah. There was no way to sell, like, even a relatively small app that you knew would appeal to, like, consumers and that you'd want to be, like, a consumer-friendly price. There was no way to, like, price it accordingly because so much money came off the top that you had to charge, like, $75 at, just as a starting point, if not more. Um. I don't know. We can come back to this. Let me take a break and thank our next sponsor. It's our good friends at Squarespace. This episode is brought to you by Squarespace. Start building your website today at squarespace.com. Use the offer code GRUBER, my last name, G-R-U-B-E-R, at checkout when you buy and you get 10% off. Now, what type of website can you build with Squarespace? Much better question would be what type of website you can't build with Squarespace. Squarespace has gotten amazing. It's always been a good product, always been a good hosting service, but you go to Squarespace and they take care of everything. You start an account, you start, you tell them what type of site you want to build, a store, a blog, a podcast, uh, a portfolio site if you're an artist, anything like that. 
you tell them, you know, you go through, it's all visual. Then they show you templates for that type of site and you pick a template and you pick features that you want that you have. And then you see it. What you see is the actual website that you would have if you turn it on and make it live and any changes you make, you don't make through code. You just make them when you're logged into your account as the, the account owner, you just make them visually. It is truly WYSIWYG brought to the web where you're in the web browser looking at your site and you just move the stuff and change the stuff right there as you're looking at it. It, it is phenomenal. And they've, you guys have heard of Squarespace for a long time. I mean, they have been around for a while, but they're relentless on moving this forward, the plat whole platform forward and making it more and more powerful and expanding it into more and more things. Um, professionally designed websites, really, really amazing looks, very modern. Um, intuitive and easy to use tools for editing and polishing and changing. They even take care of stuff like domain names if if you need one. Um, so here's what you do. Start your free trial site today for any type of site you might want. Just go there, see if you can make it in Squarespace for free at squarespace.com. And then when you do sign up, just make sure to use that offer code Gruber and you will save 10%. And they'll know that you came to them from here, from the show. So my thanks to Squarespace. Yeah, I don't know. Back to whether or not I agree with Ben. I don't know. It makes a good case. Maybe the answer is sort of a half and half. And I, I don't know. Maybe that's stupid. Maybe I'm trying to have it both ways. But maybe I would say not so much the profit and loss aspect of it. And again, iMessage is another example. How are they supposed to make money, money on iMessage? There's no money, right. you know. But if, you know, compared to these other chat services like WhatsApp and, and WeChat and stuff like that, I think if you broke iMessage, I mean, they can't strategically, there is no way to break it out. But just in terms of daily active users, which is like this measurement term that, you know, investors love to hear, at least at the moment, iMessage is worth billions. But there's no real yeah. way that they have a plan to make money. They're not going to start shooting ads through iMessage. You know? I, think, I think if anything... Uh iMessage is one of the most obvious uh, sort of counter arguments to breaking um, services out from from the rest of the company. Um, in that, getting that blue balloon is awesome. Yeah. Uh, and iMessage being part of the the iPhone experience is is huge. There's and 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 so in one in so in his first piece, Ben argues that people buy iPhones for the software and hardware, and I agree. But iMessage is a big thing for me; it really is. Uh, I remember texting you back in the day, and it cost us seventy five cents a text. <laughs> right, because we were crossing the international uh, border. We were crossing the international border, talking about Mad Men or whatever, uh, and that racked up pretty quick. <laughs> That's and I like you, but I don't like you that much. <laughs> That's a dollar. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, no, iMessage, fix that. So that's great. And yeah, sure, WhatsApp could and like a bunch of other stuff. But um, I, I, I think iMessage is one of those things that ties closely to iOS or Apple devices uh, that argues for better integration of services with Apple products. The whole thing about preferring blue bubbles to green bubbles, even if you take cost aside, even if it's US to US, and so you know that it's out of your free yeah. bucket, yeah. Um, 
is obviously subjective. It bothers some people because it's sort of a, a, if not classism, it is some sort of a, uh, a tribe tribalism. Me- yeah, tribal. I was about to say tribe mentality. So sure. same thing, tribalism, mm-hmm. which it just is innately offensive, or, or maybe offensive is too strong a word, but people object to it, and for good reason, right? That human beings have this natural instinct to be tribal. And it's that sort of thinking that leads, if you take it to the extreme, to uh, you know intolerance, if not outright racism, bigotry, or bigotry yeah. of, of what you want, to, what have you. That that you really have to be conscious of it all the way up to the top level, and that therefore it's it's just unsavory. And I get that, I really do. I joke about the blue bubbles and green bubbles sometimes, but I get it when there's people uh, who who really you know push back on that. I do get it. Just I. I honestly don't think that was an intentional design decision in order to ostracize anybody. No, I don't think so either. I think it was like, okay, these ones are costing money and these ones aren't. Yeah, and I think it was worth knowing, you know, who had them. Um, Yeah. But there's an interesting objective version, you know, uh, not subjective, but objective advantage to it. Um, At least one, which is that... um, you know that the emoji you send are going to look the same. I just saw an article this week. I didn't link to it. I don't know why I didn't link to it from Daring Fireball, but there was an article that somebody did a study that showed that people interpret emoji from different platforms differently. And that mm-hmm. at certain code points, like, you know, it's like face with, the, you know, grinning teeth. And it it has a different emotional effect you know, based on the iOS version of it compared to the Android or Twitter. Right. And, you know, just subtle cues. And it just some well, of Because each vendor that... Yeah. I don't know if everybody knows, but I mean, it, like, what you see on your screen is not what somebody else sees on their screen. Right. And a face with grinning teeth on your screen may look... Uh, I, don't, I don't know this, but, like, let's say, like, with two buck teeth on the other screen... Like so, it looks like you're just having a wide smile on your screen, but you look like you're sending a like a, a hick, right? A stereotypical hick emoticon to the other person on the other screen, and uh, when you're dealing with a particularly dense communication stream like emoticons, that becomes problematic, right? Right. There's, and I don't know that maybe people don't worry about it. Or, or I do a little bit because I find I always you know I mean it's shocker given my career I really it pains me to think that I'm not commu- you know people aren't understanding what I'm trying to communicate as clearly yeah. as possible. Yeah. Um, and have you, you know, have you given into emoticons in chat? I don't think we do it. Often, no, but I, I've never yeah. did. I uh, and and emoji have saved me from it. I've never really was a big user of of like the the ASCII art, you know, smiley faces. I mean, I'm not going to say I never sent them, but uh, I've just found them to be too silly, so I didn't. And Yeah. Um, I think you use them more than my... I use emoji, though. I use emoji now. You know, I'm not going to say like a teenager, but I, you know, use it quite a bit. I, I use like it more it. in Slack than anywhere else. Yeah. I use I them on Twitter now. Sometimes I'll, you know, I give a lot of thumbs up on Twitter. Oh, yeah? Yeah, because it's, I, I find it to be exceptionally efficient. You know, yeah. That's that's one. There's one that across the board nobody's going to misinterpret. It doesn't matter right. how you draw it, a thumbs up or a thumbs down. Yeah, it's not like a sailboat. It's like yeah. what? Are you, yeah, what do you mean? Yeah. yeah, I find it to be 
it's 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 a great addition to our you know it's 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 you know obviously I thought it was silly at first because I'm a curmudgeon, but right. once I opened my mind to it, I really thought this is great. This is a great improvement and so much better than ASCII art. You know colon oh uh, yeah yeah colon count oh, that's, that's garbage yeah I mean if I'm writing something there's no way I'm going to use that yeah. if I'm reacting to something. I feel better about it. I don't know if I've ever spoken about this. In recent years, I have spoken to, I think you, you would know, you're a close enough reader to know that in my writing, I don't really use a lot of exclamation marks. No, very, yeah. But in like, email... Count them on two hands. In email, thing. I use them a lot. I use what I consider to be the friendly, the friendly exclamation mark. And here's a perfect example. Uh, uh, and it's a very common example is... People often send me typo reports. Maybe I've spelled a word wrong, or I've I've made a little markdown error error in the post where I I used the wrong parenthesis or I missed missed something, and you see you know like a, a raw URL that's clearly supposed to be a hyperlink, and people will email me or Twitter me up you know and say hey you got a typo. Well, a lot of people it's it's you know I think everybody knows this. It consider correcting someone's spelling or punctuation on the internet to be a faux pas that you're. You, the person pointing out the error, are the jerk because you're pointing out, you know. Uh, I love it. I have, I would rather have 100 people tell me about a spelling error I made on Daring Fireball than to have it go uncorrected because everybody thinks it's, you know, either either thinks, ah, I'm sure someone else told him, or I don't want to be the jerk to tell to tell John it's, that he has an impolite. error. So, and I try to, I can't, I sometimes, sometimes, and if I post and then go make coffee or go run an errand and it's the, the error is up for an hour, I get a lot of them. And it's almost, it's like, I can't be bothered to thank everybody. But I, if I fix it right away, I try to thank everybody. And I'll often write fixed comma thanks and put an exclamation mark after the thanks. Because to me, that reads as very friendly. And unambiguously, what do I mean by fixed comma thanks exclamation point? To me, it's, I don't know, that's just maybe the way I read that exclamation point. It's fixed and a genuine thanks. Whereas if I wrote fixed comma thanks period, I can see how that would be misinterpreted Snotty. as, yes, as dry. Yeah, fixed, yeah. thanks. Yeah, thanks, yeah. thanks for... I think, uh, I think you only ever send me fixed. Yeah, period. I don't give you the... I don't give period. You no, you don't give me... <laughs> <laughs> but I well, do because I don't need it. I, you know. I find and I, I and and years ago, I mean, I don't know how many years ago I started doing that, but it was uncomfortable with it because I'm so uncomfortable with exclamation part points to to be a, a, to me a false sense of familiarity and friendliness, yeah. you know. And and to me, and for example, in marketing materials. Almost every single exclamation mark that's used in any marketing material is terrible. It's a terrible, and it means that whoever is 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 right doing the copywriting is full of shit. It is is it is exactly why some people think the word marketing is a dirty word. Mm -hmm. And all good brands, you know, with good marketing, either never use exclamation marks or almost never. And when they do, there's some kind of good argument for it. Right. But find me an ad from BMW with an exclamation mark in it. Find me an ad from Apple with an exclamation mark in it. It's nearly impossible. So anybody out there and it's like, and it's also a rookie mistake. It's a mistake that someone makes doing their own marketing when they're not used to doing marketing because they think that they're infusing the material with enthusiasm when what they're really infusing it with is bullshit. Uh, an error of desperation, I'd say. Yeah, yeah. Because they could say something completely accurate. Right. 
But when you put an exclamation mark, it's like you're trying to really call something out. But I agree with you in casual communication, uh, especially these days. You know, it's just a friendly way of being like, oh, thanks. Like it, it. Long story think short, of it though, le- my- I mean, it's it's a modifier. If you're reading an outline uh, out loud, it's a modifier on the way that that sound should be, right? Like mm. it goes up. Yeah. Oh, thanks. Yeah. Oh, thanks. Yes. Different thanks. things. And yeah. as I do more podcasts, as I do, po- or I, I don't really do a lot of podcasts, plural, but as I podcast more and more, I've grown lazy in my writing not lazy but i've grown to appreciate the fact that i can use inflection on a podcast in a way that takes yeah. a lot more mental effort in prose to 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 be unambiguous about the you know whether you're being sarcastic or not or something yeah you know. well you need to set it up also uh i think it doesn't help you okay that's a bad way to start a sentence uh but it doesn't <laughs> help you that like a lot of your in your link list it's like one word you know, yes. retorts, basically. So if you then write with brevity, it's read in the same voice as like these one-word retorts that you use in the link list. Hmm. Yeah. I've used emoji on Daring Fireball a few times too, just like twice though. Have you? I missed that. I, yeah. I, I need a better way that. to do it. What site is that? I don't know about that site. <laughs> I need to look into it. There is some sort of I wouldn't not that I would use it frequently, but there but part of what makes me unlikely to use it frequently is the whole issue of the rendering, right? Right, the rendering and not even being able to control the long-term rendering on Apple and iOS devices. Who knows yeah. if and when they're ever going to redraw some of the some of the glyphs. Yeah, happy face could be a swastika like next right. week and you have no control. Right. Um trying to see there I, I just sent you a link to this uh verd story on the study that shows people interpreting uh emoji differently and it's the one with grinning teeth is a really good one because it's on all the other platforms and i don't know exactly which what the name of the it's grinning face with smiling eyes yeah. uh and apple's glyph makes it look like somebody who is oh man uh you see the teeth it's not like a smile a. And it's yeah. almost like you've just said the wrong thing. Right. Right? Like like the look you would give if you just mentioned somebody's son or, or like their mother. Like, hey, how's your mother? And then like, so, you know, all of a sudden you remember that their mother died recently. You yes. know, or something like that. The, the sort of grin you would make in that situation. Like a seething like, sorry about that. Whereas the Microsoft, Samsung, LG, and Google ones are all unambiguously a toothy smile. You know, it's all happy. They're all happy. Uh, perfect example. And so there is, there's a value to iMessage in the fact that you, and maybe people don't think about it consciously, but you're, you're, you know what the other person's going to see. Well, wait. Doesn't we, that mean that iMessage should normalize to what these other guys are doing? Uh, Personally, I prefer the Apple logo. I think it looks... Uh, the and it's useful. It's useful it in a way that... And I don't think that there's another... It is useful, but does it match the grinning face with smiling eyes? 
well, which the is other the thing description too is, of the emoji, right? Even, but even with the other ones, this study assigned, you know, polled people on whether they think this is a negative connotation or positive connotation of the glyph. Even among the other ones, there's a fairly wide variety. They're all positive, and apples is negative. Apples oh, they're grouped way negative. closer together, dude. But but there's a difference. Like the difference between Microsoft and Google is over over a point on a five point scale. I agree that there's. A oh definite, my god, are you? Come on, dude. No, no, no. Totally Apple, Apple is... <laughs> There's a four-point difference between Microsoft and Apple uh, in the negative direction. No, no. I, I'm not trying to argue that on the case of this particular one that Apple is not an outlier. That, right. No, I'm not, okay. I'm not arguing that. Apple, okay. But I'm saying, though, uh, even not counting Apple, it's interesting to me that the ones who agree on the basic sense of it still have a different... Um, oh, Sure. I, I, that that and I think for most of the emoji that that's probably the case. I don't think any, you know. I think most of them there is no outlier, but that there's still a. Um, I agree. The other thing is context. Uh, emoji very seldomly makes sense without any words around them, right? Or at least context of in in a conversation. Hmm. So while you could look at like I don't know what this tested. It was like, okay, what do you think about each one of these emojis? You could feel totally different given. The researchers surveyed online respondents on how they interpreted the emoji's sentiment, rating it on a scale from negative five, strongly negative, to plus five, strongly positive. I have, you know what? I'll tell you what. I don't think I've ever used this Apple emoji. Uh, our friend of the show, Paul Cafasis, he likes to use that emoji. As uh, being as as a person who is uh, a, an observer of uh, the uncomfortable aspects of life, yeah, right. That he uncomfortable likes, is what that says, right? He likes to document, you know, uh, sort of we- the weird and you know, on on his uh, one foot tsunami and yeah, uh, in personal correspondence, he will often, you know, he's a I I that's one person I know who has sent me that emoji. But gooding face with smiling eyes is the name of that emoji. Do you think Apple has accurately r- rendered that notion? No, I think not. Although, so I, although, while I like the, but although uncomfortable, I'm totally into. Uh, yeah, I think the problem with it is that it doesn't. What? It's not the eyes; it's the grin. Because to me, a grin. I mean, maybe I'm wrong, but to me, a grin implies a smile. That a grin is a subset of a smile, whereas that is absolutely not a smile. No, that's like a that's a drawn teeth. Yeah, tooth suck. It's like it should be like the name of that emoji should be embarrassed tooth suck. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, (laughs) yeah. Which I believe, I firmly believe, is a perfectly valid emoji to have. Yeah, and that's a great representation of it. Yeah, here's the def- dictionary definition of grin. It is a smile broadly, especially in an unrestrained manner with the mouth open. Dennis appears, the example, Dennis appeared grinning use cheerfully. Uh, as a noun, it is a broad smile. So, yeah, definitely. I think I think that the grinning uh, teeth is, is inaccurately rendered. But now it's too late, or is it? I don't know, because if they change it, then all sorts of things, all sorts of ways that it's already been used are are changed in meaning. Depends who you're talking to, and that's the problem, right? Right. Like emoji are 
words that when I send them to you change meaning. Right. Boy, this show's really I, I've I love this show's it. like all I love place. it, but it's nowhere near. It doesn't this is nowhere near the list of stuff. Like that, we're getting yeah. into long, linguistics. I love it. Uh, yeah, and that is sort of the there is an advantage there to the old school ASCII emoticon artwork where it's a little bit. Uh, it's a little bit more defined, right? Like your semicolon might look different than my semicolon, but, but I still close, get yeah. I know a f- stupid winky when I see it, right? Uh, <laughs> I don't even know how we got here. <laughs> I don't know. So, uh, oh, we were talking about of- iMessage and services and whether they should be broken apart. And so we got to. Ask, we got I to also to, wonder. I we got if, to, to one specific emoticon. As I, uh, <laughs> uh, as I wonder about <laughs> the, uh, that's actually that the one we're talking about. I'm looking at the study now. I should not. I, I'll link to this study in in the show notes. I promise. I'm copying and pasting it now. They have examples of the ones with the biggest deltas. Um, the grinning teeth one is not only is Apple an outlier as the emoji, that particular, the, the distance from which the, it, there's no other emoji that they studied that has a spread like that. It just means something different. Yeah. It's actually, and I think concentrating on that one in particular, actually you lose the general context of the study, which is that even with the ones where they're generally right. all compliant with the description, people have a different interpretation of, of what they mean, in ter- or at least the sentiment of being positive or negative. Right, which I think is a super interesting point. Uh, you know, I, th- I think the Verge, and it's not a knock, but, uh, you know, whatever, they picked the most illustrative point. Because it's easiest to write about. Well, yeah, I mean, we'll look at that. You know, yeah. that's clearly an outlier. And that, you know, makes you want to kind of learn more about it. So it's really not a knock on them, but it's like it right. really illustrates it. Like, look, people on different platforms will see different things. Yeah, and Ben Thompson is—if he's listening, if he does listen to this show—he's probably screaming at us that we're not talking about stickers. Which, because Ben's a big Ben's a big fan and studier of the chat services, the ones that are cross-platform like WhatsApp and WeChat. Um, and those things have these things called stickers, which are like emoji, but they're custom to the service and it's just sending an image like an emoji um and you know maybe around a holiday they'll come out with like a whole set of them about christmas so instead of just like an emoji you've got like santa claus on a christmas tree you could have a whole set of stickers all about christmas or or whatever or the world Cup. i was so down on that but you know what uh you know i, I talked to him over slack and sometimes I don't even care to actually respond to him, but I'll do one of those reaction emoji. Yeah, exactly. And I'm like, oh, Ben, you kind of got me on this sticker stuff. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I don't know. Uh, you know, I, the more I talk about it with you, the more I'm starting to disagree with him. I wonder, disagree I, with him? Oh, you should get him on the show because he's, he's a he smart won't cookie. Do. He's never done this show yet, has he? Yeah, what are you talking about? Is he? I'm pretty sure he's in this show. Well, let me look at the archives. <laughs> don't remember talking to Ben. <laughs> it's like three times at least, dude. All right, ten times. <laughs> he's done it 
ten times. <laughs> no, maybe it's five. Maybe I just search for Thompson on the page, and it shows up. It'll show up twice for each one because I'll mention them in the title and the. <laughs> so it's five. You know what? You know what? He's never doing it again. I didn't actually. I'll tell you, I'll tell you that Come much on, right now. I didn't actually forget. He's been on twice since August uh, of last year. And yeah. He's probably on more often than I am. Probably, and four times in the last year. Yeah. <laughs> um, what about Apple Music? Isn't Apple Music already sort of a standalone? Oh man! And they they have to sort of do profit and loss on that. I mean, they know how many subscribers they are, and they know how much they're paying. You know, whether they actually count it and 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 hold it accountable and have goals for it, and you're getting fired if you don't meet this the way some people would, some companies would in their divisions, surely they know exactly how much Apple Music is making and how much it's costing, and therefore they know whether it's profitable or not, and they know what the delta is month to month. I mean, and, and we know it because yeah. they leak things like the number of customers, you know, subscribers. It's very, very competitive I, I, business. I honestly, like, so, ben, uh, you know, getting, getting back to the, Press tax. Uh, Ben's basic argument is that whatever gets measured gets fixed. There's no way they don't know if Apple Music is making or losing money. And it's not that they say that they don't have profit and loss in the company. It's that they report one level of profit and loss. Right. Which is a very different thing. I don't think that means internally that they don't worry about this kind of stuff um i messaged I, I i don't think that so they expanded what icloud drive storage yes there's no way they did that without considering profit and loss no way well of course not because they charge for that right you know in so fact clearly it, they've got some numbers yeah and in fact i'm telling you the more i talk about it the more i, I it's a great piece but i still it, the more i talk about it the more i think i disagree that that's I, I totally agree that he has he's identified a problem. I don't think that oh, yes. his proposed yeah. solution is right. Because uh. to me, uh, iCloud drives another example where they don't do profit and loss across, you know, the way other companies do. But you would never guess that by the way they charge for iCloud storage. <laughs> right? right? Based on the way that, that they yeah. charge for iCloud storage, you would think the opposite. You would think this is a company where somebody in the iCloud division has a gun to their head that they're supposed to make a lot of money on this. Yeah. Because they charge more than anybody. Yeah. For, a, for what? Penny. And there's another yeah. one too. iCloud Drive, to me, works amazingly well. I honestly, in my experience, and I know somebody out there is going to disagree and think that I'm smoking apple dope or something, but uh, I find that it is up to Dropbox quality, which is invisible. That I never, if I'm editing, you know, apps that I know use that use iCloud Drive, like, uh, you know, I have a couple of important numbers spreadsheet. Uh, at this point, when I save stuff in numbers, I know that it's there and I can go to a different Mac or a different device and it's going to be there. It's just there. Uh, that's not, I, to, I still use Dropbox because I use it in different ways and Dropbox is more, is a lot easier to use as a sort of junk drawer where you just put anything and everything and have it go everywhere. And iCloud Drive to me still works best in the mindset of, hey, the documents for numbers, you go to numbers. You know, it's not really, I don't really, even though you can put arbitrary files in your 
your iCloud drive now. I still use Dropbox for that. But just in terms of having the sync work just invisibly, instant, nearly instantaneously, um, it's up there. I think they get a bad rap for for problems that they had in the past, and people either aren't giving it a fair look in, with open eyes now or um, it, they're just too set in their mindset that Apple's, you know, that anything related to iCloud sucks. But what they charge for it, I think, is it's almost crazy compared to what other people charge for storage. I think the storage rates are exorbitant. Uh, the functionality seems to be really pretty solid at this point. Uh, I just can't believe so, that they I couldn't mean, charge a lot less than they should. And if anything, they should be because you know it's really only meant to be used on expensive Apple devices that have high profit margins. It seems to me like iCloud Drive storage per gigabyte ought to be less than the competition, not more than the competition. Because, like Dropbox, just to name one example, all the money they're making is for people paying for Dropbox storage. They don't sell. $800 cell phones that with 40% profit margins that they can get other revenue from. All they have is the storage, whereas this is just one little thing. So there's an example where I don't know, I don't know how doing it. They can make more money. Uh, I guess. I, I don't disagree with you, but I mean, you know, if they run the scenarios Apple, and they make Apple more money. Apple can make more money, you say. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I agree. And if, that, again, if Apple can make more money and they run the like, projected scenarios, and right? Like, and well, Moltz and I often yeah. run it. You know, for some reason, Moltz in particular and I, when he's on the show, always run into this where we end up talking ourselves into spending Tim Cook's money. You know, right? And I re- totally realize, which is an easy and awesome thing to do because it's fun, right? But yeah. I totally realize that the way you become the world's most profitable company is that you, you know. <laughs> cut your losses and you you know you sweat yeah, the details you make you, money you don't yeah. piss money away here and there and that all sorts of ideas that we have involve apple pissing a little extra money away here and there and then you know piss a little away here and there and then all of a sudden you're not the world's most profitable company well because ultimately so the argument is that uh they should make icloud storage cheaper despite the fact that we don't know how many like what the percentages of iOS device owners or Apple device owners are that subscribe to it, they should make it cheaper in order to make them happier. Mm. Well, but and, uh, but we've already got a cost sat number of like ninety eight, right? Like maybe when that drops to like eighty nine, maybe that's when you're like, okay, I, but I, here's I almost, all the free stuff. You know? I almost think that Apple should know better than to trust the customer sat because people. Maybe, I do too, and, people, and I, I actually think they do. People yeah. maybe don't have high enough expectations yet. They don't expect to have infinite storage online, and so therefore they don't judge Apple by that. And therefore, they, you know, they say, I'm completely satisfied with my iPhone, even though they only have five gigabytes of storage in their iCloud account. Whereas I think Apple knows better than that. And it even it just comes sure. back to my hour ago story about being appalled when the guy just threw a handful of card catalog things up in the air, like data loss, data loss. I, it just breaks my heart knowing that there are people who don't can't put their entire photo library in their iCloud account because they're, they only take the free iCloud storage. Like, I really, yeah. really think that it, I don't want to quite say there's a moral obligation, but on some spectrum it is. On some spectrum, being in favor of avoiding data loss at all costs is a moral issue. And, and I really wish that more and more people would be able to, you know, reasonably serve their, save their entire photo and video library to their iCloud account. Because otherwise, if they lose or break their phone, they might lose 
lose photos and videos permanently. I don't disagree with you yeah. about that at all. What, do- what that costs, I don't know. But, um, I mean, there's always local backups. There's all, you know, yeah, you can, you can, I know, I know. Uh, but not, not to get all capitalist on it because I'm Canadian. So we should probably just nationalize every company. Um, <laughs> but, <laughs> but, uh, doesn't the fact that they can make money on it on you know like if people need this kind of protection it's effectively insurance right yeah can apple not be in the in the insurance of your business i i think the best thing that ben wrote in that piece was that the draper quote uh was his name draper or am i thinking of madman the guy the the management guy who said you you you, what what you measure is is what gets yeah. approved. Right. Um, that's the key. And Don think, Draper. Yeah. <laughs> he might as well have said it. Uh, that's the Don Draper would never say that. He would say the exact opposite. I but I I think that they, what the what Apple needs is better and more rigid measurements of their services. They should and higher standard standards for them. I see fewer and fewer times that I see any kind of out of sync iMessages. I, I use iMessage all the time. I use it across a bunch of devices. And in my use, it is excellent. And in getting better, this is another one of those things where I just feel like don't judge it by how it used to be, but it's it's really gotten good at when I'm at my Mac, the iMessage is aren't going off on my other devices because it sees that I'm active on my Mac and texts that I've sent from my phone all day. If they're on iMessage, when I get to my Mac, they're there waiting for me if I want to get back to it. Um, but it's still not perfect. I just had an interaction with someone the other day and I, I don't know why, but my texts to this guy only go to my phone or from him, they only go to my phone at least. And they don't go to my, my Mac and I don't know why they're blue uh and it seems like both devices are set up with the same phone number and the same apple id and uh, whether he's sending it to my phone number or my apple id email address i I don't know but everybody else's are synced between so just you know 99 instead of 99.9 percent of messages syncing properly between devices you know maybe make it 99.99 you know but measure it you know there's there ought to be a good I, and i do always opt into the send apple diagnostic stuff so they they're hopefully they're measuring and they can they see that there's a glitch you know but that to me is the bottom line not that it should be about dollars and cents and profit and loss but that they should pick better metrics and improve these services to those levels what do you perceive as the services well, that Apple has that are, that that need the most work? Hmm. Um, iCloud Sync has actually got better. Do you think it's good enough? As as somebody who ships Mac software, the the you know saves to the cloud. Uh, this is your app, Napkin. Yes, Napkin. Uh, we had some early reports where they were like. The files would clobber themselves when they were synced over the that that was bad. Uh but things have worked out better. Um 
Notes is actually a really great app, and I'm sorry to say that because I know you. No, I don't disagree at all. I mean, yeah. it's, you know. Well, you know, I don't want well, to tell the new you version on your show. That, yeah, yeah, the new version of Notes. The, notes, the version of Notes that's, yeah. that debuted last fall with iOS uh, 9 and, and the new version of Mac OS, El Capitan, um, because it, the, the old version of Notes only synced through IMAP, and it was a terrible hack and acted like a terrible hack and was unreliable. And the new one uses CloudKit, I think, right? I'm yeah. like 99% sure that it's yeah, it dog fooding yeah. CloudKit, which is not files in a file system like iCloud Drive. It is, um, I'm not quite sure what the word is, but it's asynchronous abstracted uh, object permanence, I guess. Yes, that's a good which way. Which is it. A, <laughs> well, it's a bunch no. of words. It's gobbledygook, really, but I mean, it, you know. But it's an API that developers seem to like, and it seems to work the way it's supposed to, which is, you know, exactly what a service should be. Nice change your pace. Right. Yeah. That it's, you know, it is, it's a good API or a good enough API and it's reliable. So, and yeah. it works at, at, in the, within the time frame that you would hope that it would work where the note that you just pecked out and pasted on your Mac, you pick up your phone and go and it's, it's there on your phone. So it's, you know, that's a good example iTunes and Apple Music are, they're a mess. Uh, I, I mean, I don't even understand iTunes anymore. We, you had Eddie on the show recently, and he yeah. was like, uh, well, when you go to the music tab, all you see is the music, and it's like, that's not the problem. Right. Um, if I play an album that I own through Apple Music, I can click on the album art and click on a song on it, and it'll start playing. And then if I try to navigate to find, like, to play what's next, and I click on an album that happens to have been included through my Apple Music subscription, the song will stop. <laughs> so I can't, I can't go and add it to Up Next. I don't for know whatever that, reason. I like, don't know though how much that counts. I agree that there are problems there, and I still I find Apple Music to be confusing. Apple Music. I don't understand it. I'm a very technical person. It it triggers the uh, maybe I'm a dummy thing that I think makes me a good designer and a good critic of design because I am. Oh, I don't. I'm a dummy. Right, but I'm unable. But I'm also technical. I'm unable I'm like, to understand complex, overly complex interfaces, and that therefore, I right. I think it makes me, a, and I think I'm good at explaining why, you know. And it's it just is over the over the line of I just it just it, this doesn't seem to explain itself. Uh, I can I can start to understand the rules, but they're arbitrary and based on technical limitations yeah. rather than like I don't uh, know that that counts as being bad at services though. I feel that it's more of a sign of being tolerant of insufficient user inter user interface design. Okay, well, yeah. The client expression of that service is uh, suboptimal. Hmm. Uh, by and large, I'm actually not that down on Apple's services per se. Uh, but I also, I don't think I rely on them as much as many other people do. Hmm. Like a lot of people do collaborative uh, document sharing uh, over Google or calendar sharing. Uh, I don't have to do that. Yeah. Uh, 
I don't know if I'm exposed so much to the the negative sides of maybe where Apple is uh, not quite as at the forefront. Well, and the other thing, too, that plays into this, and I often think about, and I don't know how much of it is a problem or not, is that Apple is in a position where uh, they benefit from the services of others. You know, So if there's collaborative aspects to... Uh, Google Docs that you know Apple's pages or whatever else can't provide. The fact is that you can get the full benefit of that while using an Apple product, because Google Docs has you know iOS apps and and web a web version that runs in you know anywhere. And I think that's true for a lot of services. You know, it's. It, you know, that they've got the problem for Apple was back in the early to cycle back to two hours ago in the show. The problem was back in the old days when Apple was so much smaller that the stuff, all this stuff didn't work on Apple stuff. I mean, most right. famously, the best example I can think of was that at first Napster was a Windows only thing. Right. And there was this amazing thing that was a sensation that lit the entire world on fire. And Mac users were left out at first. And then it was like we had a, like third-party clients that just use the Napster API, um, which were actually in some ways better because they were designed by Mac developers and had better interface. But then, as Napster itself, the first class, you know, the first-party Napster would change things. The Mac changes. It, you had to wait for the third-party developers making these sort of yeah. That's the story of the Mac in the nineties, right? And we don't. Apple doesn't have that problem anymore. Nobody, nobody does Mac. No, second. don't. No, or iOS no. second at least. Maybe Mac second, but not iOS. So yeah. I think it's a little different, you know. And I don't think that they have to do all the services themselves. And in fact, I think that that kind of thinking it it sort of is what led to Microsoft's downfall. Where to me, where Microsoft really fell off as the dominant, the company that really drove the industry in every every important sense was that they institutionally they wanted to do everything. And anybody who had any kind of success, Microsoft would say, well, they're making money on that. Let's go do something right. that beats them, right? So, you know, they they competed with Oracle. They competed with Sun. They compete. I mean, you name it, they competed with them. And they even, you know... They won a lot of those fights. Right? They did, but it... Sometimes dirty, sometimes fair and square. But I think it, may, I think it let them take the eye off, their eye off the ball that they didn't have any, you know... I think trying to do it all is is inevitably going to lead to failure. So do you think that's where Apple's going? No, I don't think so. But I think, though, that the mindset that they have to be good at, they have to be as good at, as Google at all services is maybe the wrong way to look at it because maybe they don't. Mm-hmm. They just have to remain a appealing platform for Google to make sure it remains a first-class citizen. And I don't see any signs that that's changed. So what do you think about this uh, Intel layoff kind of thing? Which seems like a weird segue. Well, let me but, take a break. I mean, before, that's another company that... Let I me take a break before we yeah. talk. That's a great way, a great final topic. Um, let me take a third, third break here and thank our uh, third sponsor of the show, our final sponsor, our good friends. Love this company, Fracture. Fracture is a company that prints photos directly onto glass. Super high quality. I, I say it all the time. I cannot, it, it looks like nothing else. It doesn't look like, it's not like getting a printed photo on paper that is perfectly mounted under glass. It, it looks different and it, in a way that is better. Um, it looks, it, 
it's just uncanny what it looks like. It is super, super nice. You get a piece of glass, your photo is printed directly on it. They have all the sizes you could possibly imagine. Little like three by three square ones, four by four, I forget what the size is, but little little tiny desktop ones to really, really big ones that you would mount on a wall. Um it's really kind of amazing. I know megapixels are sort of overrated as a camera thing, um, a way to rank camera quality. But the fact is that it, there's a certain threshold for printing things big, and you need enough megapixels. And it's amazing to me that the iPhone is well past it. You could take an iPhone picture, and if it's in focus and sharp, you can print it up to really big size and get really a really amazing out- output out of that. And I say that knowing that for anybody who's listening to me, most of your photos are probably taken with your iPhone. There's very few people who take a majority of their uh, photos on uh, standalone cameras. And even people who use standalone cameras probably don't take a majority of them on anything other than phone. You can go really, really big. Um, and Fractures prices are really affordable too. It starts at just uh, 15 bucks for the small square size and it goes up from there. They make fantastic gifts for family, friends, and loved ones. I know Mother's Day is coming up. It is a fantastic, hurry up, get your order in for Mother's Day because uh, it's a small company and I know right before the holiday it's going to get backed up. But if you listen to this in, in the, the, you know, at the end of April, hurry up and get it in. It's a great gift um, and I just can't say how happy I am with them. I wouldn't, get my photos printed to mount or to put on a desk any other way because it's so much it's both more convenient and higher quality and i don't i don't know how you can beat that so um if you need any more reason to go ahead and use fracture give them a shot uh you can save 10 percent off their already excellent prices by using the code talk show 10 talk show 10 one zero that's just talk show spelled out and then one zero um and just go to FractureMe.com to check out their services online. FractureMe.com. My thanks to them. So Intel. Intel announced that, what are they laying off? Like 10% of their workforce. 12,000 people? 12,000. Yeah. Um, I think it's unsurprising. I think, you know, and it's always funny. I, I The number surprises me. I, That's the layoff. I mean, so you were probably hip to the, I'm pretty sure you were hip to the, the industry uh, back when IBM had its first layoffs, like late nineties. Hmm. Well, you know what? Actually, this is before I think before Apple got involved with them. But IBM was a powerhouse, and they they were like an old school company. Like we don't do layoffs, right? You work at IBM and you retire. It's a point of pride. And right. You're, you're exactly. a company man. You right. get the watch. You would like when we we set you up, uh, and then they they hit some times and they they did some layoffs, and this Intel thing kind of reminds me of that a little bit. Yeah, and especially because they were, especially going back to the nineties, uh, you just cannot emphasize how you know. I know that they used the term Wintel, but that was Wintel was the Windows as the software and Intel as the CPU. The Wintel duopoly was just so dominant in the industry in terms mm-hmm. of uh, both what actual people were actually using, which was Intel-based computers with Microsoft software running it, um, and the, where the money was going. It was going to Microsoft and it was going to Intel. Um, I mean, you could have reaped all of the r- rewards of the 90s stock market just by putting money into Intel and Microsoft. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. And it just seemed that sort of success over 
you know, a decade, it after a while, it's human nature to just see it as inevitable. You know that it's that it's they're always going. Intel is always going to be Intel, and it just it you know I don't know going back in time and telling somebody in 1997 that Intel is going to have massive layoffs in 2016. I mean, 2016 would sound like a long time off, but you would think, wow, something something weird happened in between now and then, because that doesn't seem possible. Well, and something weird did happen. I think a couple of things did. I think that there's, I think it's yeah. multi-variable, and that all of yeah. the variables, all of them worked against Intel. It's like it's like a perfect storm. Yeah, I can't think of really one just taking yeah. in their like, favor. Like all the ways like, that yeah. the industry has changed since since their heyday have all been against their their favor. Um, I mean, let's just recount them. I mean, obviously, one of them is the shift to the fact that PC sales have plateaued and and are in a decline because people are either using their old PC longer and. It, and their older PC is good enough performance-wise that that we've reached. You know, maybe that's even a separate separate factor in that is saturation that, point. If, right. If, that that yeah. that we've re- reached reached a point where client-side computing is fast enough for most people most of the time. So the old there's no need to replace your older PC if it's still running based on performance reasons. Obviously and famously, people are doing a lot more of their personal computing on "quote unquote" mobile devices, which roughly defined means phones and tablets. And the phones and tablets, most of them, overwhelming majority of them, are using ARM-based chips, which Intel doesn't make. Mm-hmm. And which, funny enough, they they sold. They had like an ARM. Yeah, division. that X scale was right. Meh. That they sold just before the cell phone. And now, here's the thing, though. I wonder, though, they're even keeping that. I don't know that that would have saved them because one of the other factors is that arms, arm, no. or Intel's business is based on the fact on on the, the the idea that a significant portion of the cost of a PC is the CPU. That that's you know whatever, however much the PC costs, a big chunk of it is uh, the the CPU. And Microsoft's business used to be based on, and to some degree still is, but they've successfully moved away from, you know, moved away from this in a way that I don't think Intel has. That that in the old days, a, pretty much the entire cost of the PC was an Intel chip, a, a license for Windows, and then a whole bunch of cheap components, like hard right. drives and RAM and stuff like that. That was all commodity-based. Well, I don't think that's... Everything else was a I mean, commodity. So- software is software. They can pivot better than intel can being hardware and i uh, but don't like, you like i think that you the can CPU move off is, of being the os provider and onto something else faster than intel can move off of hmm. being the chip provider right. onto something else well and being a chip provider where the cpu is not a mere commodity it right. was a premier component i mean and just look oh, at yeah, the they both saw their legs cut out they, from beneath them and now what? We yeah. Mac users always think, I always, at least I always think of Intel stickers, the Intel inside stickers in the context of that poor sap at the Apple press conference who asked Steve Jobs why, yeah. the, <laughs> why the, the first, you know, after like 2006 Apple, kind of thing? 2006 yeah. or 2007. Well, it had to be 2007, I think, Six. because they, it had to be after the ones came out. 2006 was the year that the switch was announced. Right. Okay. And then 2007 yeah. would be when it came out. So that the, the Poor guy at the press conference in 2007 who asked why Apple's Intel-based MacBooks don't have an Intel. Wasn't that the same year as the iPhone? Yeah. That's embarrassing. Yeah. (laughs) 
It's <laughs> you're you're worrying about the wrong thing, dude. Um, but just think about just think about the fact that it, the idea that the Intel chip is so important to the PC, whether it's from HP or Dell or Compaq back in the day, or name that you name Sony, you know that they all put an a visible Intel inside sticker on the outside of the PC or the laptop. Uh, and I know that they were marketing, you know, deals and everybody took it and there was money that it was involved. But the notion of putting a CPU maker sticker, uh, Mac users laugh because Apple just wouldn't do it. But no phone has uh, a Qualcomm inside sticker on it. It's just yeah. the CPU is reduced in importance. It's just another one of the components. Now, it's obviously an important component. And you can obviously spend, you know, higher end phones have more cutting edge CPUs. But it's just a different world. The idea of the CPU being so supremely or so extremely supreme to the what's in the device, it's just no longer the case. You know, and I they you know, they can't expect to make hundreds of dollars from a CPU and a phone. Right? Yeah. Well, no. I don't the Intel I honestly don't know if they can expect me. I'm talking out of my ass here, and somebody will hopefully correct me. I'm talking out of my ass, but I I would guess that Intel makes more money from a $300 PC that gets sold today with an Intel CPU than than they would make from a an ARM CPU in an $800 iPhone if they were to make the CPU for the iPhone. I don't think well an RCPU if you sure because they'd be licensing the ARM IP, right? And part of which the which they used to partially right. own, but they sold it. Right. So. Oops. Um. I don't know where to go for Intel. I don't. Uh, they seem like they should go onto the server side. And I don't know enough about how those architectures work these days, but it seems to me that eventually a bunch of like really low-powered ARM chips uh, with SSDs attached could perform a lot of the web traffic that is, you know, mostly what needs to be served up today. Yeah, I don't uh, know what the like, I, I don't know what the way forward for them is either, but I do. Like, think, I don't know if you need a super powerful CPU yeah. on the back end anymore. Like uh, maybe we've tapped out in in terms of what a single CPU needs to do, and now we're looking at like a hive mind of CPUs. I I just see that I think that the way forward for them is probably not in making things for consumers. You know, and whether yeah. it's the server or the whatever other professional market, but that's the only way for a company like Intel to make high-priced components. I think at the consumer level, we've entered an era where you know those chips are all—they're all commodities now. Yeah, you know what? I—I—I've been a long-term fan of uh, IBM, and they got out when the getting was good. They sold off their PC industry to Lenovo. They gave up OS2 probably 10 years too late. But they're IBM, so they were supporting their customers for a long time. I, I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna cut you off before you start going into OS2. <laughs> I don't want to talk about OS2. I'm just saying that as a company, 
they've managed their business for like a hundred and something years. Right. And they've known when it's good to let go and they've, they've, uh, they've made good on that promises. I, I think that them, them selling the ThinkPad business when they did was, is a, in hindsight, a great example right. of skating to where the puck is going. That yeah. they were exactly right. They sold it not not before it was too late. They sold it while it could still command a premium price. Yeah. But they totally saw that that was going away. That, that and they was, went to a services business. Yep. And they had to cut a bunch of jobs, which is unfortunate. Yeah. But IBM, I mean, they've been kicking it for like a hundred and some odd years now. So kind of hard to like, how do you argue with that? Yeah. Well, that's that's about it from my list of topics. Anything else you want to talk about? I mean, we've been going on for a while. Uh, WWDC is really expensive. WWDC is very expensive. That that is that's the last thing I wanted to talk about. So, um, Apple finally, and and I mean that non sarcastically. I really do think that they should be embarrassed that they announced WWDC dates only eight weeks before it actually happens. I think it's. I think Apple's got to put on their big boy pants and and commit to it at least I would say four months in advance, but at least 12, I think at least 12, but anyway, they at least they, 12, like a year in advance. No, 12 weeks. I'm oh, sorry. 12, 12 weeks, weeks. Okay. 12 weeks. Okay. Um, but you know, I, for, I skip between months and weeks there. So, um, uh, so they announced WWDC dates. It's exactly when everybody thought it was going yeah. to be, uh, June 13th to 17th. But a lot of people have noted that, uh, including me, because um, I'm not buying it. I didn't enter the lottery. Um, I, yeah, I, me neither. And it's always easy for me to say because every year, for at least since 2007, I've gotten a press pass for the keynotes. Uh, and in recent years, they've let the some of the people with press passes go to conference sessions and stuff like that. Um, but so I didn't even enter the lottery because I don't want to take the lottery spot from somebody who really, really wants to go and doesn't have the privilege I do of getting a press pass. Um, it's, yeah, it's the same with me. I don't. No, not that I know I could guarantee a pass, right. but I do not. I will be there. I, I can talk to a lot of these people. It's fine. Yeah. Like, I don't need a pass. Uh, I'd love to be there, but, man, tight seating, you know. It is. It, and, and it's funny. I knew that the prices for hotels in, in downtown San Francisco have gotten more expensive. And my thought was, because someone who goes to New York a couple times a year, I know that Manhattan famously, and, and to me rightfully so, is you know the greatest city in the world, um, says an American. Uh, but arguably the greatest city in the world. You know, yeah. It makes total sense to me that Manhattan is the most expensive hotel city that I, I'm familiar with. And off the top of my head, it seems like not just for WWDC, but the last few times I've gone out, you know, for the last year or so, every time I go out for an Apple event and I stay in San Francisco, it seems to me that like it's no longer a case of bad luck. Like the one year, the the iPad event in the fall was coincident with the the uh, I think it was the E three gaming conference. It was somewhat the big gaming conference that's in San Francisco. I don't know if that's E three or what the name of GDA it is. GDA yeah, um, the game developers conference. GDC, 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 association, GDC, sensationally, I mean, just uh, tens of thousands of attendees, and it was like, holy cow, did you know the hotel? And it was held at Moscone, so it's all the you know downtown hotels, super expensive. But it's been the case for the last few years where it doesn't matter whether it's June or 
March or September, it's expensive. And then somebody pointed out to me on Twitter that it's it's actually Bloomberg actually did a report and San Francisco is now the most expensive hotel city in the world. Um and it, which exactly it's not just me wanting to get a, a nice room at a cheap rate. It's actually like the truth. It's more expensive than uh whatever the city is in Switzerland, it's more expensive than New York. It's crazy. And it really puts a damper in the ability for us as a community uh, to just say, hey, even if you don't get a conference ticket or even if you're not a developer, you should come out to San Francisco that week anyway because all of us will be there together and, and people can show up, you know, people get tickets to my, my live talk show. People can, you know, talk in hotel lobbies and you'd make friends and make contacts and and schedule all sorts of other events. But the the sheer cost of it now is really, it's it's absolutely locking people out. I don't know what Apple can do about that. It's not Apple's fault. It really no, isn't. No, no, no. And there's been some suggestion that they could do it in Vegas, and I don't think that'll fly. It doesn't work. And you know me. I love Vegas. Yeah. And I love Apple. Yeah, uh, I would actually I would love to go I don't Vegas, think it would work, though. I, yeah. I know. It, it's and, and it's as a function of having tons of really high-quality uh Hotel rooms at reasonable rates. Vegas definitely has that. I mean, you get a, a four four and a half star room at Vegas almost all the time for under two hundred dollars a night. Um, and in terms of having conference space, there's a couple of options. I think they have. I've never WWC is a little different than like a convention, but you know, there's a lot of places there. And I know that the Aria Hotel is building a new one, but I I think it's for other reasons. I think it's I think it's off brand for Apple. And I don't think it works for them in terms of... They have of, to move a lot of people. And honestly, a lot of people just come up to... A lot of Apple people come up because it's there. Yeah. It, it, they shuttle... A lot of Apple people who are involved at WWDC in some degree or another are just, still are in Cupertino during the week, either some of the days or every day, maybe just in the morning, and then, you know, get their... It's like, a, oh, yeah, okay, I'll come and run a lap. All right. There's... There's an awful lot of cars shuttling forth from the south of Valley up to San Francisco with Apple employees and back and forth during WWDC. Whereas if they held it, whether it's Vegas or any other city um, that required air travel, it's everybody has to go and everybody has to stay there all week. And it adds... Very different thing. It, it, it adds cost, it adds commitment, it adds disruption. And anytime you do air travel like that, even if it's not and changing... it subtracts uh, serendipity. Yes. Like, oh, yeah. Maybe I'll just go and show up. Yeah. yeah. Well, and it adds a day before and after. Just not right. even talking teardown and and stuff like that. It just means you've got to go the day before and you've got to leave the day after, as opposed to if you're just driving an hour down there. You know, it's it's a little different. Yeah, it won't leave the valley. Yeah, I don't. I think. It, 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 yeah, it's like if they could find another option in the valley, maybe. But you know, it's it's like in the old days. I never went to one in San Jose. Uh, I, I like the first WWDC I, I went to, it was already in San Francisco at Moscone. I went uh, to a GDC in San Jose back in the old days. But you and I have friends, good friends, yeah. uh, you know, like Chris, you know, your partner yeah. at, uh, with Napkin at uh, Aged and Distilled, who, you know, I think he was probably at Adobe back then, right? Yeah, pretty sure. He so was. back yeah. when he was at Adobe and the, 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 the San Jose era WWDCs. Uh, Brent Simmons had been to a, a San Jose or a WWDC. Everybody agrees that in terms of, you know, the social aspects of it, it was terrible because San Jose, <laughs> like the light, you know, they turn out the lights at five o'clock in the afternoon. Yeah. 
And so you just lose all sorts of um, social serendipity. Right. And I don't think it's big enough anymore. I really don't. No, no, you can't do it there anymore. But I'll tell you. I mean, they could maybe open the other Moscone portions, but. Quite frankly, though, in the early years of Daring Fireball, in the first at least five years that I went to WWDC, I, I wouldn't have been able to afford it if the hotels were ex- expensive then as they are now. No. No, I mean, it, I find it obscene now. And it hurts, too. I, I find that air travel has gotten yeah. more expensive, too. And I don't know what the reason for that is, but it may, it may be specific to the Philly, the SFO route, and the, the way that the, the airline options out of Philadelphia have changed since then. Um, Maybe. But, but I, I mean, used, it's becoming like a five grand adventure. I right? used to. One week costs you about five grand, I'm going to guess. Yeah. At Maybe least more. it's 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 really it's almost sickening. I yeah. mean, it's it's not <laughs> not to be gross, like right. crass about it, but I mean, <laughs> that's like serious money. And for me, it's no, a- that's like really like how, how do you spend that kind of money without really thinking about is this worthwhile to attend? <laughs> you could go to like a really nice a really nice vacation resort somewhere for a lot less right. money than to go there and have you know some bum urinating on the sidewalk in front of you you know yeah i love san francisco but let's face it it's not not a resort destination (laughs) it's really crazy how expensive it is and i don't know what to do i I bet apple actually is a little concerned about that but on the other hand it sell you know it sells out so fast that they have to have a lottery the last time they didn't have a lottery it literally literally sold out in under a minute Every, every single ticket for sale sold out in under a minute so, I think the last one I got to, you texted me at like 8.30 in the morning. <laughs> and I was like, I just pressed okay until I managed to buy a ticket. <laughs> and that was a couple of years ago. Yeah, so, I think it was three yeah. years ago. I think Could've I think been. this is yeah. like, this might uh, be the second year of a lottery, I think. But so it's yeah. not like they're not, they're going to have trouble filling out the the Oh, no, that's going to sell. And I yeah. think for the student scholarships, I know that they announced this year that they're going to institute, they're going to have uh, travel plans, or they're going to help with travel for some of the student scholarships too, which I can only, that's ass- great. I yeah. can only assume includes a hotel. I mean, whether it's free or whether it's just discount or just a relatively, you know, for the student disc, you know, students, a relatively low reasonable price that includes the hotel accommodations, which a is student great. student that can afford even half of what we've been seeing. What park was, what four hundred bucks a night? Uh, yeah, it's at least yeah. When I looked the other day, come on, the oh, park fifty five, which is to me the baseline hotel in the neighborhood, um, is uh, four hundred nine dollars a night, which is insane. <laughs> it's just insane. <laughs> <laughs> really, is the park fifty five? I don't. I like I, those guys. I do, but I mean, come uh, on, four hundred bucks a night. It's a fine hotel, but it is. I feel like somebody's getting bribed to have it on the four star list instead of the three and a half star list. Right, and yeah. it's you know, it was always like, well, it's not the best, but at one hundred eighty nine dollars a night, I'd rather sure. save. I'd right. rather save the money. You know what I mean? And you could get a better hotel for two hundred and fifty dollars a night back then. But you'd think like, well, wait, I'm coming out for six nights. That's fifty and a fee. It's like almost four hundred bucks. It's like, yeah, yeah for four hundred bucks, I'll stay at the Park Fifty Five, and it feels. But what, now that they've got the prices over three hundred dollars, four hundred dollars, it's like you got to be kidding me. Four hundred dollars yeah. a night to stay in this place that looks like it came out of. I, do, do you remember when the Intercontinental just opened and it was like ten bucks a night 
kind of thing. <laughs> it was like, the Park Fifty Five reminds me. It just seems to me like it was. It's like the nicest hotel in East Berlin during the Cold War. Because <laughs> the the grotesque architecture. Yeah, the, the brutalist like, architecture yeah. and like the way that they think that this is this is what we think a nice hotel is like. <laughs> <laughs> it's just crazy. Nice it's absolutely yeah. crazy. And there's no there's no more. See, there used to be. The other thing too is we've got you know amongst our pals and their little clique of friends we have. Somebody would figure out some way every year. They they go through. Somebody would go through Hotwire or, or yeah. Priceline or something like that. And they're like, uh-huh. hey, if you go through Hotwire and search for a hotel within one mile. Of this location, there's there's a four star option, and it's only a hundred and seventy nine dollars a night. And I I booked it, and it's you know the such and such hotel, which is you know right. It's a great hotel, and then everybody would quick do it, and we'd get a you know everybody would figure out. There's no more. There's no secret anymore to getting a, a hotel in San Francisco. At a you know what? Rate. That never worked for me because I'm Canadian, and like whatever <laughs> service they used. It was probably Kafasas. I mean, what, uh, whatever service it was like. Uh, yeah, yeah, U.S. people only. Yeah. I'm like, ah, okay, guess I'm paying full price. It's <laughs> crazy. I, yeah, I don't know what Apple can do or anybody can do. No, Maybe they it, can't fix that. That's I, not I can't help but think, I, I, and I could be wrong. I mean, every, you know, it's it's only a bubble if it pops, but I can't help but think that some of the San Francisco go-go uh, economy is a bit of a bubble and, mm-hmm. and that it'll come back down to earth. Because I don't think it's the natural state of affairs that San Francisco is 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 more desirable than Manhattan, you know? And I don't I know. I like San Francisco a lot as a city, but uh, no, I agree with you. I feel like one way I or the other, either of... the economy pops and the prices go back down, or they build enough new hotels that uh, that the you know the the supply and demand equation changes. But somebody was saying on Twitter that they're not there aren't really any plans for new hotels. That there's a couple, but nothing no plans for hotels that would be sufficient to really change the overall supply and demand ratio. So we're stuck. Well hotels are more I mean try living there, right? Yeah. Oh I, know, talk I, to our friends that Yeah, it's crazy. You know, yeah. Nobody likes that. Uh, some yeah. of the suggestions people had on Twitter, and they're reasonable, and it's probably what I maybe this is what I would do if I were if I you know couldn't afford it now. Uh, if it was ten years ago in the early days during Fireball, is people are saying you can um, uh, you could stay out by the airport for a lot less and take like an Uber X into the city every day and take it back at night, which sounds crazy because it's the Ubers from SFO to downtown is, is it's not cheap, but way cheaper. It's about 30 bucks a pop. Right. And I'm, my plan is to just stay down in Pacifica. Yeah. And that'll be about 20 bucks. Anyway. (laughs) And, and a lot of explaining to my girlfriend and I'm sorry, I'm showing up at five o'clock in the morning, but, uh, I'm just going to sleep in the garage. So My plan fine. is to spend just a sickening amount of money on one of the regular hotels. I've got one already. Mm-hmm. I booked, and the other thing too, the other last thing is that booking in advance was not any sort of uh, benefit either. Because um, I had a guess as to when the the WWDC would be. It was right, and I booked a hotel room months ago. I think it was like January, um, at a terrible rate, <laughs> at an absolutely terrible rate. But I know I like the hotel, and uh, I I was worried that if it, that it would 
might get so busy that it would be hard to get a room at any rate if I waited until after right. it was announced. Mm-hmm. And so I booked it not because, hey, I'm going to lock in a great rate. I booked it because I thought, well, at least this way I know I have a hotel at at least a reasonable by today's standard San Francisco rate. And then, but it's refundable and I'll just keep searching and hoping that maybe in the last week or two prices, you know, there might be some deals. I can ref- I can get a refund up until like Friday before uh, WWC starts. So when you check in and they ask you how many keys you want, you're going to say <laughs> two, right? I always get two because right? I'll have... Uh, cool. I'll have... Fine. Perfect. <laughs> I'll have my friend Guy Pro- with me. Problem solved. <laughs> yes. Two two queens. <laughs> two queens. <laughs> uh, Guy English, thank you for doing the show. This has been a great talk. Uh, John, people, it's always fun. People can get all the Guy English they want on Twitter uh, at uh, GTE. Yeah. G-T-E. Uh, and uh, and they could see your great app, Napkin, at uh, Aged and Distilled. In the Just, Mac App Store. Yeah. yeah, or the Mac App I got Store. A, I got a podcast still called uh, Debug that you can check out where we interview people about, oddly enough, uh, computer history. All right, with fellow longtime friend of the talk show, Renee, Renee Ritchie. Yeah, that guy's not a dummy. <laughs> <laughs> also, he's, I don't know how, I don't, he's the nicest guy in the world. He's, he's, yeah. To me, just yeah. talking about all this stuff just turns you cynical. It just, I don't, how do you not get cynical? And that son of a bitch, Renee Ritchie, he's, does not he's have like a, like the Canadian's Canadian. He's, he's just, he is he's the Canadian's Canadian. Yeah. Doesn't have a cynical bone in his. No, he's one of the nicest people I've ever met. All right. Thank you, Guy. Thank you, John. Have a good weekend. You too.